You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 525. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from a studio in Northwest Arkansas. Today's show is recorded on the 15th of June, 2022. In today's episode, the pilot son of a former L.A. Dodgers player dies in a Marine training accident. A Hungarian Airlines CEO seems to suggest that employees work when fatigued. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 525 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Rogers Turn. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me from her lakeside studio in South... Doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff, and I will just apologize to everyone in advance who's watching this live or on YouTube for fan noise in the background. I don't know what's wrong with my computer today, but um, yeah. And if you're watching the video, I'm not like slouching on purpose. I'm just sitting as far away from the actual fan as I can because it's also driving me a little bit crazy. So... (laughs) Other than that, looking forward to a great show. Good to see you. Well, it makes sense that there would be an amazing amount of fan noise because I'm sure you have more fans than anybody else does here on the APG crew. So uh, great to have you with us. And also joining us from his home studio. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Lovely intro as always. And for Steph, uh, I'm just wondering if that's a big-ass fan. And um, for me, uh, yeah, I know my collar is green. Thank you very much. Okay. And also... Joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. It's Nick Camacho. Hey guys, I'm glad to be back. Had a couple of weeks off, but uh, back to chat with you some more. Sweet. And last but certainly not least, the glue that holds this all together. From her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, director, my assistant, and our good friend, it's Liz Piper. Bye, everybody. Have a good show.
stand by for news. Thank you, Paul. All right. Starting off with this, Marines, five Marines killed in Osprey crash in Southern California desert. Uh, Let's see. This is the article that I want to use here from Flying Magazine. The U.S. Marine Corps has launched an investigation after an MV-22B Osprey crashed during a mishap in the Southern California desert Wednesday, killing all five crew members on board, the service confirmed on Thursday. The MV-22B went down near Glamis, California, I think, around 12.25 p.m. during a training mission. The tilt rotor aircraft was assigned to Marine Aircraft Group 39, 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing, which is based in Camp Pendleton, California, a U.S. Marine Corps spokesperson told Flying Magazine. We mourn the loss of our Marines in this tragic mishap. Our hearts go out to their families and friends as they cope with this tragedy, said Major General Bradford J. Gehring, commanding general of the 3rd Ma, said in a statement. Uh, Following the accident, the service reported that five Marines had been on board the aircraft at the time of the mishap, that it was awaiting confirmation of their status, adding, quote, contrary to initial social media reports, in other words, they don't know what they're talking about, uh, there was no nuclear material on board the aircraft. I don't, not sure I understand do the they, mission do the of the Osprey, but do they ever nuclear? have nuclear Someone material? who knows will probably let us know, but nuclear I weapons? wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. We're looking for something yeah. sensational to say. Yeah. I think probably just you know, your typical journalist thinks, oh, it's a military airplane and they all have you know, like nuclear weapons on them. Nukes. Yeah. Nukes. Somebody's got aircraft. nukes. Anyway, um, now I noticed in the um, in the intro, uh, Radio Roger was saying that uh, one of the people that uh, lost their lives was the son of a former mm-hmm. uh, baseball player. You, and I would look through all the, the things that we have NBC, here in our in our um, that, that news notebook. News and uh, I'm sorry, Liz. That NBC News. Article? Yeah, it's, uh, it's Steve oh. Sachs's son is the one that uh, one of the pilots. Oh. It, I was just looking through that as well. I was surprised that he mentioned that. I saw your reaction, and uh, so I was looking through here and, and didn't see it. But yeah, Steve Sachs was a Dodgers player, so he oh. uh, was well known out there in the area that the airplane crashed. I guess he, he must have done some more investigation after he saw the news or something. I don't know. Yeah, he must have because I don't see it in what we have. But uh, no, that's yeah. uh, that's sad. Anyway, um, moving on to this next item, uh, this. Last uh, incident uh, is just one of several that have happened in uh, recent weeks. And uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, well, it says plans. This is from the New York Times. Uh, U.S. Navy plans a safety pause or a stand down, we used to call it in the Air Force, uh, after a series of aircraft crashes. Uh, all non deployed aircraft will stand down, stand down for one day to review risk management practices and conduct training, the Navy said. Um, and by the way, they uh, did this on Monday, a couple of days ago. We're recording on Wednesday, the 15th of June. Um, in the wake of three crashes, two of them fatal, the U.S. Navy has said it will ground all non-deployed aircraft for a day on Monday to focus on safety protocols. Uh, the grounding comes after crashes within a seven-day seven day period in California this month resulted in six deaths. The uh, day will be used to review. Okay, we talked about that before. Uh, on June 3rd, the uh, a Navy pilot was killed after his F-A-18E Super Hornet 
crashed in a remote, unpopulated area near Trona, California, about 170 miles northeast of Los Angeles. The pilot, Lieutenant Richard Bullock, was flying a training mission. On June 8, another military aircraft crashed, killing five U.S. Marines, the one we just talked about at the top of the news. Uh, The next day, a Navy helicopter crashed near El Centro, California, more than 100 miles east of San Diego. The helicopter, an MH-60S Seahawk, was also conducting a training flight. All four crew members uh, survived. Uh, One was taken to a hospital for injuries that were not life-threatening. So, this is not unusual. I'm sure, uh, Nick, in your time in the RAF and the RAAF, you probably had uh, instances like these where all of a sudden you have a lot of incidents or accidents or both, and, you know, the... uh, the, the top brass says, okay, time out. Let's uh, all stop and, you know, stand down for a day or so. And let's have everybody kind of review everything and make sure we're doing things right because uh, this is going in the wrong direction. I certainly think it's a very sensible thing to do, particularly if uh, you have got common um ways of protecting yourself, common ways of dealing with uh, threat analysis between the services. But no, actually, in my uh, 20 years, uh, we never did anything similar. Um, Even though we often, you know, had years where we might lose 10 or 15 uh, aircraft, um, you know, sometimes in, you know, you'd lose five aircraft in a month. I never remember that happening with us. probably because it's a, it's a more modern attitude towards flight safety. But I certainly don't think it's a it's a bad idea at all. Uh, I think it's uh, very good. So, you know, you take a look just to make sure there's no common link. And uh, if it turns out that uh, there is, then you can deal with it before you reinstate flying. I think it's a super idea. Yeah. It happened a couple of times that I can recall in my little over seven years in the U.S. Air Force where, you know, we, we had one of these – stand downs and uh, it kind of gets everybody's attention you know because everything just comes grinding to a halt and uh anyway uh main man micah also adds an important uh, fact here in march another mv-22 went down in norway killing all five on board and also in march an ec-2 went down in virginia killing one crew member so they've had a, a spate of uh recent crashes with a no not good results. So, all right. Uh, anything else to add, anybody? All right. Uh, let's continue on then with uh, item C. Uh, this is from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Uh, the dead bodies of two brothers were discovered in the landing gear of an Airbus A330 plane operated by Air Algerie on Saturday, June 4th. Workers found the grim discovery after being alerted by a third brother who had received a distressing video call from his siblings who were stuck inside the landing gear compartment. The two brothers, aged 20 and 23, were found by maintenance staff at Algiers International Airport, according to local media reports. The aircraft was temporarily impounded as law enforcement started a criminal investigation. The data from the flight tracking website Flight Radar 24 shows the seven-year-old aircraft had last landed in Algiers from Paris. It's not immediately clear when the Algerian brothers had climbed into the landing gear, but it appears their intention was to fly to Barcelona. 
The reason that Barcelona would be the ideal route is that it is less than an hour flight from Algiers, and the aircraft only climbs to around 34,000 feet for a short time. That's still pretty high, but I guess the short time being the critical part here. Although the journey is still perilous, the brothers would have been subjected to the harsh conditions within the landing gear compartment for only a short period. In similar incidents, stowaways have suffered a combination of hypothermia and burns, as well as prolonged hypoxia. However, in the days leading up to the discovery, the same aircraft had flown for more than six hours to Dubai and back. The flight time to Paris is more than two hours. Last November, a Guatemalan stowaway managed to survive a more than two-hour flight in the landing gear compartment of an American Airlines flight from Guatemala City to Miami. And in January, and in January, a man miraculously survived in the landing gear compartment of a plane during a 12-hour flight from South Africa to Amsterdam. Wow. Yeah, we did talk about that on a previous episode. Thanks, Liz. So, um, it, it keeps happening, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's a very attractive proposition if you want to get quickly out of a country and uh, those uh, areas where the gear uh, has vacated because it's on the ground seem to be a, a large dead space that you, it's easy to climb into. Just uh, scramble up the uh, undercarriage leg, and then you've got a you know a small room up there. But uh, people forget that that gear has to go somewhere. And not only that, it's a completely unpressurized, unheated um, part of the aircraft. So, uh, you know, unless you understand what's going to happen to you when you end up higher than Everest without supplemental oxygen uh, and uh, temperatures as low as, you know, minus 50, minus 60, possibly even minus 70 degrees centigrade, uh, it's a lot worse sounding in Fahrenheit, Um you know, you you don't really uh, people don't really appreciate uh, just how hostile that environment is. So if you don't get crashed to death, if you don't fall out when the gear doors open to allow the gear to come up, and you find that the floor you were sitting on is suddenly turned into a wall and spilled you out, uh, as often happens, you've then got to try and survive for the journey, uh, which we uh, we know is is you know the odds are really stacked against you. So, you know, when it comes to um, stopping this sort of tragic event from happening, uh, the aircraft needs to be better policed when it's on the ground. You know, there are some airports where you get armed um, army personnel around the aircraft while it's on the ground. Uh, Not many places will do that, but there are some. Um, Personally, when I did a walk around uh, of my A330, uh, I would stick my... uh, phone because I couldn't peer inside that space without climbing on the gear myself but I'd stick my phone up in there take a couple of pictures just to make sure there weren't a pair of beady eyes looking back at me um, but um, you know it just requires vigilance from the ground staff to ensure that uh, people don't come to the aircraft that aren't uh, authorized that shouldn't be happening anyway and that they certainly don't have access to the wheel wells that that will what would you need to prevent this so 
then some advice for people who want to hide in those compartments and Captain Nick is out there with his phone, make sure you keep your eyelids closed so he doesn't see your beady eyes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> right. you're definitely and, uh, taking that picture with flash, right? So you'll get the... Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I did. It's dark in there, I'm sure. Anyway. I've got a few. I'll show you some. Oh, but my gosh. No, no, I've never caught anybody up. Ah. There, but don't forget, we did our walk around soon. I could half an hour before we took off so yeah you know leaves time you still to avoid you know? that then yeah no I'm, I'm you know surprised pretty much every weekend at how many people don't realize that it gets colder with altitude um yeah every weekend like, oh <laughs> it's cold like yeah no kidding we're not on the ground anymore <laughs> 14,000 yeah. degrees. We're closer to the sun. Feet. Shouldn't it be warmer? Standard yes, I've heard that argument. Too. Lapse rate. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, quite cold up there. And, and I don't know, every time you hear these stories, man, it just makes me feel sad that, uh, you know, these are such desperate, desperate conditions these people are in that they're willing to take these types of extreme measures to, <laughs> you know, try to get some place where they can improve their their life, you know? I guess you're unplugging. Absolutely. Uh, I think Jeff is just uh, moving some he's, furniture. So he's rearranging around. some furniture in the background yeah. there, folks. It's fine. Sadly, Nobody knows. Come his... on, you're destroying <laughs> the magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had mean, to turn my is... refrigerator off. It was just making noise. Are you sure it's the refrigerator and not my computer, which is still running at 36,000 or 36,000, <laughs> wow. 3,600. Yeah, no, I can do math too. 3,640 <laughs> RPMs is what it says. Sorry. Wow. Anybody out there uh, who is a uh, <laughs> Apple Macintosh uh, mechanic or uh, I can't get it to change. It's just stuck there. Technician. And it's not. Do you have any ideas for stuff? Not because the computer is hot. Anyway. Yeah. All right. So, sorry. I, I mean, not only obviously we're going to feel dreadfully sorry for the people involved who perish, um, but you've also got to consider the people who are left with the job of uh, discovering yeah. and then yeah. dealing uh, oh, yeah. with them. Um, and I, I only today I saw an article concerning the American aircraft, the transport aircraft that were um, in to Afghanistan during the evacuation and uh, how they uh, the service um, inquiry has cleared the crew uh, i'm was thinking that it was Ukraine? a c17 was it or, or... Yeah. No, it was afghanistan. Yeah. afghanistan oh it was afghanistan because uh there were people crawling all over the aircraft as it taxied uh and uh some people got up in the wheel wells and uh when they got airborne and retracted the gear the gear wouldn't even close properly because it was uh literally um you know um, obstructed by the bodies mm. of these unfortunate folk uh, you know, so uh, desperate times when yeah. that sort of thing happens. And I, f I feel so sorry for the people who are directly involved. It's, it's not the crew's fault that this happened. Uh, they were doing their best to uh, avoid a tragedy, but it happened nevertheless, and it must prey on their minds. I'm sure it does. Mm -hmm. Neil thinks you were doing something different there with your fridge. Oh, Neil, when I was uh, taking care of my refrigerator uh, issue, he thought that I might be checking for stowaways. If there is a stowaway in that little it's just refrigerator, they're very, very, very it's just tiny people. Yeah, Hillel, Hillel, I don't think he could fit in this little tiny refrigerator, no. but uh, I think he might be somewhere around the corner here in the bathroom. I don't know. We'll find out later. We're going to find out later, yeah. All right, uh, let's move on, shall we, to uh, this 
interesting article uh, from BBC.com. Uh, Wiz Air Chief Executive uh, Joseph Varadi said staff should go, quote, the extra mile. Uh, he's res- uh, Wiz Air is facing a backlash from pilot unions after the airline's boss appeared to call on crew to work through fatigue. Chief Executive uh, Varadi said staff should go. I just read that. Okay. Um, pilot unions said flying when fatigued is dangerous and his comments showed a deficient safety culture. But Wizair said uh, Mr. Varadi was addressing all workers, not just pilots. Like some airlines, Wizair has been forced to cancel flights over the recent Jubilee Bank holiday, which coinc- uh, coincided with the school's half-term break because of widespread shortages in staff. On Wednesday, Mr. Varadi told workers, now that everyone is getting back to work, I understand that fatigue is a potential outcome of the issues, but once we are, uh, start stabilizing the rosters, we also need to take down the fatigue rate. Did I misread that, or is that not exactly right? It's just once? not written very well, oh, okay. or that's exactly what he said, and his English isn't uh, Not sure. Could be, yeah. I mean, we cannot run this business when every fifth person of a base reports sickness because the person's fatigued. We are all fatigued, but sometimes it's required to take the extra mile. The damage is huge when we are canceling the flights. It's huge. Uh, It is reputational damage of the brand, and it is the other financial damage, transactional damage, because we have to pay compensation for that. The European Cockpit Association, which has been pushing for union recognition at Wizair, shared a short clip of Mr. Varadi's address. It said the comments encouraged pilots to fly when fatigued and called on regulators to step in. It's like handing the car keys to a drunk driver, the union said, adding it showed a deficient safety culture at this airline. Um, Martin Chalk, General Secretary of the British Airline Pilots Association, BALPA, said that fatigue has been shown in many studies to have effects on a person's thinking and decision-making similar to alcohol. No one supports pilots or other safety-sensitive staff working with alcohol in their system, he said, adding that he was very surprised by the apparent views of Mr. Varadi on fatigue. Uh, he called on him to clarify his comments and that if he really believed pilots should fly when fatigued, he should consider whether he is in the right job. Uh, so it goes on a little bit more talking about how important it is that pilots not fly while fatigued. Yeah, truly sending the wrong message, Jeff. I, I really don't understand what he was thinking when he said this, um, because the, you know when you're speaking so publicly, and even if he's not talk, talking uh, just to pilots, uh, there are lots of uh, folk who work in uh, very dangerous areas uh, around the aircraft. So it could be uh, engineers who have a vital job in making sure the aircraft's safe to fly. It could be um, ramp workers who you know are in a very dangerous environment if they're not completely uh, awake and, and aware of what's happening around them. Uh, you, you could result in uh, in fatal accidents occurring. Uh, you know, people walking into an engine or uh, just just the number of vehicles that uh, are around an aircraft. I, I just very irresponsible. I, to a certain extent, I understand his frustration. They've got a high. Uh, fatigue rate but if you're worried about cancelling flights then make sure you have standby staff sufficient standby staff to cover those who 
are working so hard that they feel they need to um, raise the flag and state that they're fatigued. It's not a simple process, and it's not one that you do without risk of you know, disfavor in your company if you start saying, well, I'm too fatigued to fly. But so, you know, pilots, generally speaking, would resist that. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, this is irresponsible and, uh, you know, not a, a good example to set uh, for your employees. Agreed. So interesting, though. I mean, right now, everywhere is so short-staffed. I'm not sure where those extra people come from or how you get them you know, trained and um, up to speed fast enough to. to well, I, some I of quite those agree, uh, Steph. Yeah. But because if they're working that short staff, then everyone is going to be working to exactly. the absolute maximum number of hours, which is bound because those limits are not like a, a speed limit. You know, you you can't you can't just creep above them. They're an absolute limit. And you're not supposed to drive people to work to them all the time. Otherwise, fatigue is almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to give them a bit of a break because, uh, you know, there's only a certain amount that people can do and stay uh, compostmentous. So, um, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're short of uh, crew, well, make your packages more attractive drag them away from other airlines. I mean, it all come, basically comes down to money in the end. So if uh, someone wants to shift to Wizz Air and ease their um, pilot shortage problem, then, you know, make it worth their while. But don't sit there and drive your own staff, which are probably already working right to the limit, uh, to work even harder. Or do the same thing that several of the uh, U.S. major airlines have had to do um, in recent weeks, uh, they have to cut the schedule. They have to adjust the schedule down to a size or capacity that uh, they have yeah. the staffing to support. Absolutely. And you you'll, will hear, have heard stories of airlines like BA who canceling, you know, hundreds of flights because that's, that's the, um, you know, that's what you have to do. But, uh, if you're going to do that, please do it in a responsible manner that gives people the opportunity to rebook somewhere else mm -hmm. or reconsider what they're going to do for their holidays. Don't leave it at the last damn moment before you whip the rug from under them. Yeah, I, I was going to mention, you know, but uh, Captain Nick kind of touched on it. Obviously, there's the ramifications of this, him saying this in public and, and the impact in public confidence and stuff like that. But also, can you imagine uh, – being a pilot candidate who just met the requirement thresholds and you're like, Oh, let me think about where I want to go work. And this company who clearly has staffing issues now also has this kind of, um, I don't know, like if I didn't know anything about them and I Googled them, the first thing that came up was their CEO talking about how, Oh, you just need to work harder. You just need to overcome, um, these fatigue issues. I would think my first thought would be that is not somewhere that I would want to go work. Or that is not a guy that I would want to go work for. So I would think that would also be negatively impacting their staffing issues. Just quit being tired. That's all yeah. you have to do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. If everyone had 36 hours in a day, they could make it work. I Wait a minute. <laughs> Are there not? Hmm. <laughs> think about that. All right. I think now we can move on to this next item. Nick Anderson. Yeah, on this one. let's see. This 
is in regard to a story that we covered um, in an earlier show, I think last year. I'm not sure how long ago. Do you recall exactly when this happened? Uh, stand by. Okay. Um, I think it was 2020. Okay. A couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, December of 2020. So um, let me do this. I think the best thing to do would be for me to play this uh, video from a news source. Yep. 2020 is Liz is confirming. Uh, Let me uh, play this. And this kind of sums up uh, what's uh, what the update is regarding this uh, incident of a super hornet. It was never before seen footage. Australian Air Force crew ejecting from their fighter jet and crash landing at Amberley. Seven News has been seeking answers as to what caused the dramatic incident as defence tried to keep them hidden. Now we know why. They are Australia's best of the best, piloting our most high-tech machines, but this incident proved people make mistakes. It certainly wasn't a Top Gun moment for the Royal Australian Air Force. December 2020, two crew eject from an FA-18 at Ambly, crashing to the ground. Unhurt, but with questions to answer, this redacted defence investigation finally providing some. Clearly we had a pilot who uh, was distracted in the cockpit. The Super Hornet, codenamed Cannon 51, was the lead aircraft in a three-jet formation takeoff. During taxi, the pilot failed to correctly follow checklist protocol. As the throttle was engaged, a warning light was activated, causing a distraction. The pilot failed to notice the jet veering off the runway. Errors were made correcting the deviation, and after hitting a mound, the rear seat weapons officer activated the ejection. The jet was repaired at a cost of $1.5 million. For months, Defence has been trying to keep this report out of the public eye, but with its release comes the admission the incredibly dangerous and embarrassing incident that occurred here was all down to human error. Outgoing Senator Rex Patrick fought to obtain the investigation. It is the taxpayer that pays for the training of these pilots, for their salaries, they pay for the aircraft, They're entitled to know what happened. But Defence still won't say if the Maverick pilot is still flying. Joel Dry, 7 News. Oh, I get it. Maverick pilot. So since I'm the only one here on the crew that has any experience at all flying the uh, uh, Hornet. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not me. It's uh, <laughs> Captain Nick. Uh, so what what do you think about this um, <laughs> this incident and what caused it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I think this uh, Australian commentator, I'm not quite sure who he was. He sounded like someone from government, didn't he? Um, yeah, it sounds like they didn't um, do the pre-flight checklist properly and uh, set their cross trim correctly, which raised a master caution during the takeoff run. Uh, if that happens, quite honestly, the most sensible thing to do is to abort the takeoff. Um, uh, and they failed to do that. Uh, I think there was a, a bit of looking at the, um, did you see the representation of the aircraft getting airborne? I, I mean, I can see why they ran off the runway because both guys are looking out the side window yeah. and no one's looking <laughs> forwards. So I know. Uh, That'll I do it well. every time. They exactly. look like Legos. You don't, uh, things as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't look forward yeah but everything uh, when, when the aircraft's in full afterburner 
and accelerating extremely fast. Um, you know, more than a couple of seconds looking down and anything could happen. Uh, so, and in this case, it did. So they allowed the aircraft to, whilst trying to work out what the problem was, rather than just going, oh, I've got a master cushion, I'll reject the takeoff. Uh, if you peer in and try and fix it during the takeoff run, well, that's probably uh, a recipe uh, for disaster. But I wasn't in the cockpit, so... I, I don't really don't know what was going through the guy's mind. They let it drift off, whacked a a, a light, which uh, damaged. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I mean, I think they just are startled, right? They're like, mm, yeah. Uh, they say, who, don't look over there. Don't look first over of all, who's taking pictures <laughs> of us? Right. And uh, where's that master caution? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, what I love is that redacted report. I mean. Was there anything that was not redacted in the pages that this guy was showing us? There's like perfect. maybe two page sentences. Numbers in the page numbers, the page yeah. numbers were not redacted. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's oh, nice. Uh, no, there's one sentence at the bottom. Of oh, okay. Page. It yeah. also says official at the top, so you know it's official. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, they <laughs> already down to the crew. And uh, I have no doubt they were suitably chastised. Um, and I've no doubt also that they probably, after a bit of retraining, perhaps returned to their duties. I wouldn't have thought. I mean, it's only cost them one and a half million dollars. I thought that was not airplane, really so. yeah, not bad. that much. I, I was kind of surprised no, I, that uh, there I, was not more I, damage. I, I, I thought, thought that was quite well. low. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would have been worse if uh, they, they did mention in the report that the uh, the ejection um, cut the throttles off. I don't know quite how that happens. Um, I mean, it may have been the blast of the ejection physically mm. blew the throttles closed, but they seem to suggest that there was a connection to the throttles that was uh, damaged by the uh, ejection, which caused the engines to come to idle, which allowed the aircraft to stop. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> I expect the the pilot probably got a bit of a shot when all of a sudden he found himself dangling off a parachute, having mm -hmm. been ejected by his navigator. But that was that you know, kind of is the standard thing. You usually have uh, the ejection system set so that either of you can initiate injection and you both come out, um, uh, which is a safe way to do it. Really think about it because the pilot could easily be. Incapacitated in some instances, take a bird through the front windshield, and then the only way he's going to, if he's unconscious, get out of the aircraft is for the navigator to do a command ejection from the rear seat. But it's often down to the crew to decide what they're going to do. Um, yeah, it was so unfortunate. Shame that uh, uh, Amberly, um, you know, spoilt their record uh, and that it's such a brand new and expensive aeroplane. So there you go. Um, used to be that all the bomber pukes were up in Amberley because that's where the F-111s were based and uh, all the fighter guys were down in Williamtown. Um, so uh, I don't know whether that you're considered a bomber puke or not if you fly the Super Hornet or a Growler. So and what the captain I'll means have to ask. when he says puke, <laughs> uh, it's a positive term. <laughs> <laughs> it means uh, I'm trying to work out how you could interpret that as a positive term. Well, just just leave it. Uh, just leave it there. To, okay, we'll leave it there. Hang in in in, uh, okay. in in British speak, uh, that's a positive term, or for everybody else out there um, scratching their heads, <laughs> that's yeah. why. 
Yeah, exactly right. I'm sure we'll get some feedback from the bomber pukes. The bomber pukes are going to upload our. I'm offended. Uh, yeah. I'm offended pilot by guided. Captain Nick at Airline Pilot Guide. I don't think that's a valid. I don't think that's a valid email address anymore. Yeah. So. They only anything that has offended in it just goes directly to you, Nick. We don't have. Yeah, to, the inbox the is full. So. HR has uh, fixed Sorry. that, and we've also cleared your in- inbox out. We've oh, you yeah. have. We actually oh, okay. we've just expanded it, so it's, it's basically oh, that's limitless. Very kind of you. Thank you. That's just what I need. Storage. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> Anywho. So when I when I started looking at this story, I was a little confused because the picture um, shows a relatively undamaged jet, and then the first line talks about an ejection incident. And I was like, "Man, how did that airplane? Uh, that airplane doesn't look like an airplane that's crashed to the ground without pilots." And then you go watch the video, and it's almost comical how the two shoots land on the ground, and then like seconds later. The Hornet like rolls into view, just slowly rolling along the ground without pilots. <laughs> it had to have been a terrible feeling for them to see oh, the, yeah. see oh, the jet yeah. just go rolling by. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, at this I'm, point, it looks, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was like out of control and horrible things were happening. But at this point in the video, like the jet looks totally fine and is very slowly rolling. Like yeah. Nick mentioned that the, uh, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Reminds it me rolled. of the. The scene in Forrest Gump where he like abandons the boat and the boat goes by in the background. He's like, that's my boat. (laughs) (laughs) That's my Hornet. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, and and it was was trundling along fast enough for it to take the nose wheel off. Or did that just go down a ditch? I think it just went down a ditch. (laughs) Okay, well, they did did better then. (laughs) Good job, job those ejector seats fixed the uh, engine. Because if it – we were talking about it in a plane tale a while ago when um, someone ejected out of an aircraft and left it in full burner, and this aeroplane then careered across the entire airfield, bounced over a very large local road and uh, impacted in a field and blew up. <laughs> so, God. you know, it could have done that. So that it, would have been more than a million and a half to repair. Are these yeah, uh, I, Martin Baker ejection seats? Yeah, yeah. Do they get um, their prize for uh almost certainly yes but uh, unlike most people who write a you know a vivid description of uh how martin baker saved their lives and it goes on the martin baker website you can read all the stories of people's ejections i have a feeling that this will be a bit of a one line (laughs) they'll just tell tell you it's a classified operation yeah Yeah. exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. i'd really love to tell you but i can't (laughs) yeah that's right Oh, it's been man. redacted. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, heavily redacted. <laughs> yeah, this reminded me. We talked a couple of months ago, you know, about an F-22 incident at Eglin where they had, you know, they were washing the airplane and I think they had yes. left some of the ports yeah. taped up or something. Mm-hmm. But in that incident also, the pilot was taxiing out and got a bunch of warnings or not a bunch, but got warnings on the airplane that said, you know, we're not ready for takeoff. And he went ahead and took off anyway. He's like, meh. Seems scenario fun. as well. Yeah. yeah. And bent that jet up a lot worse. <laughs> Very so, true. And yeah. it also reminds me, we're talking about ejecting and then the airplane doing, like, flying off on its own. Uh, I don't think it was too many episodes, well, a couple of years ago. Wasn't, like, an F-16 uh, Thunderbird pilot, like, had some kind of an issue with the airplane and ejected and the thing landed in the field and was pretty much intact when it... Um, 
landed in the field. Do you recall that? Yeah, I think that was Colorado Springs. Springs, like during graduation or something. Yeah, I think there was rumors that maybe he ran out of gas or something. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, that's yeah. just some of the stuff that I read. Also, I didn't, I didn't also slightly that. embarrassing, and the entire tale will not be told on the website. For yeah, <laughs> heavily redacted. Heavily redacted. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Nick, for your in-depth expert analysis. analysis. I'm going to get some uh, replies from my Australian mates. That's yeah, so all you that bomber peaks out there. It's Captain yeah. Nick Anderson. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Uh, this next one from the Aviation Herald, um, Jetstar Asia Airbus A320-200, registration 9, Victor Juliet Sierra Uniform, performing flight 205 from Singapore to Jakarta, Indonesia, with 15 people on board, was performing a rolling takeoff from Singapore. How is it again? Kangi? Kangi? Changi. 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 I don't know why I have trouble with that. Yeah, Changi. Airports. Uh, runway 20 left. At 2011, which is uh, 8.11 p.m. local time, when the crew uh, noticed that the runway centerline lights were off and believed the runway edge lights were on, though more faint than usual. The crew commenced the takeoff, were unsure whether the runway end lights were eliminated. Upon rotation, the crew noticed the runway edge lights had gone off. Climbing out, the crew reported to Tower, who then switched all runway lights on. Singapore's uh, TSIB released their final report. Uh, Let's see. Concluding the probable causes of the takeoff incident were uh, the controllers had to judge the hours of darkness to decide when to switch on the airfield lighting for night operations. This method is subjective. When runway, uh, runway controller three looked out the tower windows to check if the runway edge lights and runway centerline lights were on. It is likely that due to expectation bias, she did not notice that the runway lights were off. Uh, The runway controller three also looked at the alpha uh, dash smigs display to check if the runway lights were on. However, the graphical presentation of the ASMGCS display appeared quite cluttered, and she did not discern that the runway lights were off. Uh, let's see. It's likely that due to expectation bias, the flight crew presumed that the runway edge lights and runway end lights were on, and thus they proceeded with the takeoff on the grounds that such a runway light configuration met the operator's uh, standard operating procedure requirement for a night takeoff. Uh, the first officer did not share with the pilot in command his thoughts about querying ATC on the absence of the runway centerline lights. This suggests that the crew resource management performance was not optimum. During the introduction of a new type of edge lights for runway 3, the ANSP uh, did not consider whether such runway edge lights could be seen or could easily be seen by controllers in the uh, Changi uh, East Tower. Uh, not all controllers were aware that the ANSP has an in-house hazard reporting system. Hmm. That must be why they didn't report this hazard. Um, anyway, it uh, turns out that the operator's uh, SOP allows takeoff without runway centerline lights, provided that both the runway end lights and runway edge lights are on. The flight crew did not ensure this condition was satisfied before initiating the takeoff roll. Um, anyway, uh, so... Basically, 
the incident here was that they took off on a runway with not appropriate lighting for the situation. And uh, I think, did you show the? Um, I did. Uh, the she picture there regarding that. that, yeah, that's what it likely looked like for them as they were taking the runway, and their their own uh, landing lights were illuminating the uh, most of the runway ahead of them. And um, I guess they're making the argument that they should have noticed that there were no runway edge lights on nor end uh, end lights. Okay, not don't everybody jump in, in at once on this one. Oh, sorry, sometimes <laughs> on. it sounds like you're listening to Liz say something. Nope, I wasn't. Well, I'm <laughs> curious. Uh, surely you turn on the runway lights at uh, civil end of civil twilight or the beginning of official night. I mean, uh, why is it arbitrary? Why is it left up to the controllers? I don't understand that. They probably change to that. decide when it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why is it a manual operation? It seems like that'd be the easiest thing in the world to automate. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty advanced uh, airport, Changi. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a lovely airport. And I'm I mean, I, bit I have an app on my that. phone that will tell me all of those times. Surely that could yeah. be tied to the system and just done and automated. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Or just have an alarm clock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just go tower. down to the Home Depot and get one of those, you know, yeah. timers for your sprinklers or your uh -huh. lights, you know. And, and set it for Works the great. start of official night. And, yeah. and if you don't know when that is, you go buy an almanac and you'll find that where that is. Um, I, I can understand the crew possibly not realizing the end lights were on because there are lots of runways where you can't actually see yeah. the end of the runway, can you, Jeff? You know, so you, you wouldn't even be able to tell if they were on or not. Uh, the side lights, well, if it's a wide runway, you know, they're a bit of a distance away and you're big, uh, you know, landing lights, takeoff lights uh, illuminate the runway extremely well. So sometimes it's, it's a little hard to, it, it, particularly if there's a bit of light still in the sky, to determine easily whether the runway lights are on or not. And I thought maybe so, the picture was that we were seeing was trying to say that there were lights in the periphery of that environment. Yeah. So perhaps they were seeing that and not sure that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot like of lights there. A, so you get a lot of lights, you know, yeah. not pollution, but uh, just sometimes, yeah, especially it, at night, it's hard a, to tell where the light is. There's a lot of light around there. All those spotlights, point lights uh, around there where you would normally be sort of seeing runway lights. Uh and uh, so I can I can sort of understand it. Um, the centerline light, well, it's a bit of an administrative thing. I mean, if you've gone into the the uh, the airline uh, operations manual recently and dug around, eventually you'll refresh your memory that you need. Oh yeah, I've, in order to take off, I've got to have yeah. uh, this light and this light. But it's not something you sort of review regularly right before each uh, flight. <laughs> yeah. uh, unless you're a stickler for the yeah. rules like captain jeff oh yeah uh, but it's not Just the like sort me. of thing that i would probably have in the <laughs> forefront of my mind on every trip um uh, so you know uh, i a certain amount of uh sympathy with the crew yeah uh and not a lot of sympathy with the tower after mm. all they're looking at that uh runway uh every time they go to work uh, and if they ever work in the night, they're going to see it with the lights on. Uh, whereas the pilots, of course, have to go visit 
a bunch of different airports, and um, some will have centerline lighting, some won't. Some will have really good side lighting. Some of them, it'll be damaged or or uh, just not very bright. They see it all sorts of conditions, and having to remember that, ah, oh, right, we're at Changi, we're on this runway, it's got centerline lighting and blah, blah, uh, you know. I, you know, you, sometimes you just come onto the runway and go, oh, it looks fine to me. Off we go. It must be okay because they clear me for takeoff on this runway. Absolutely. And they got airborne quite safely. Uh, they probably didn't even realize what the problem was until someone said, Oi, did you know? Mm -hmm. And they went, Nah, didn't know that. Sorry. Did you just say that on the radio? Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yep. I, I'd just say I think expectation bias um, is probably the correct answer to why all of these things happened as well, though. We Especially used to just call it making a mistake in the old days. Well, it is a mistake. <laughs> it's just the reason behind the mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good old-fashioned mistake. Oops. Sorry. Oopsie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oops, sorry goes a long way, actually. For fixing expectation bias. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I have the expectation bias that we're going to now switch over to the getting to know us segment, which is the time in the show where we kind of get all caught up with uh, the crew members here. And Nick uh, Camacho in that picture. I'm sorry. Where's Nick Camacho in our picture? Oh, yeah. We we're still working on uh, having getting Nick Camacho in our picture. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, now I understand why nope. Nick is wondering whether or not we really still want him to be on the show. It's like, I think, Sorry. thanks for having me back. <laughs> you know what? Might be just easier, crew. Let's just uh, tell Nick, hey, it was great. See ya. <laughs> no. Just Fair kidding. <laughs> I think we get a lot of uh, feedback from the yeah. lovely audience. Yes. Uh, that, that it would not be worth it. No, we love we love Nick Camacho, and we we're just slackers. Yeah, Hillel has had too much influence on us. I think. Um. Anyway. Um. Well, who would like to volunteer to go first with what has been going on with them? Oh, Steph us. wants to go first. Oh, I, I yeah, do. I just saw her go. Yeah. Me. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Um. What has been going on with me? Just the usual. Still very busy. Um, it's been very hot here. We kind of alluded to that already, I think. Mm -hmm. um, no exception today. I think it's still around 100 degrees outside. I have no idea what that is in Celsius. So um, make or something up. It's like 30-something. Yeah, 39, 40, something like that. 40, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> interestingly, I uh, so... I have a relatively new Jeep Wrangler that um, I've been waiting patiently to take the the hard top off of it and put a soft top on. And I purchased the, the soft top. I had to get a new one because it's a different body style than my previous Jeeps. Um, so it always comes with a bit of, you know, um, assembly required, I would say, for, for new items. And I've just been really busy. So I haven't had a chance to kind of do all this because I had to clean up my garage a little bit so I could take the hard top off and put it on the... Um, on the lift that well, I have for it. After all, I'm yeah. sure there wasn't any rain in the forecast. Uh, <laughs> well, that's we... what I'm, I, so yeah, I, I was, <laughs> I, I, you know, appropriately checked the forecast on Monday when I was like, Oh, I have time to do this test today. Looked at the forecast for the week, every day, sunny, a hundred, hot. Great. 
So went about taking the hardtop off. Um, and of course, that took longer than expected because since last time I've done that, apparently I have rearranged things in the garage and couldn't find all the necessary components. And the hardtop is also <laughs> a different size, so things didn't quite fit the right way. And I had to, you know, make some adjustments and minor changes. Um, and then I, <laughs> you know, went about, you know, opening up the box with the new soft top and all the components. And there were like 4,000 teeny tiny Torx screws. And um, they use some funky sizes on the Torx bits. I have a whole bunch of Torx uh, or a Torx kit with a, a basically like a variety pack of it because Jeep uses those a lot. I did not have the right size for any of the screws. I needed an eight, a 40 and a 45. Had none of those. It's like, oh, great. <laughs> so I didn't get very far on that task. It's like, well, no problem. It's going to be, I know it'll just be hot and sunny. So I kind of put everything back in the box and the 4,000 little screws. So hopefully I haven't lost one of those already because that would be frustrating. Also pushed it over to the side of the garage, pulled the car in, went to bed, woke up the next morning, turned on the news. And um, yeah, there's this huge line of uh, severe storms moving into the area rather rapidly, like right about the time that I have to be at work. It's like, well, great. <laughs> so fortunately, the place, I, uh, the, the office I was going to has a parking garage nearby. So I just left a little bit earlier than I had planned to, parked over there, walked to my office and left my car in the garage all day. So it did not get rained on, which was wonderful. Uh, Steph, are you trying to explain that you don't have a little button that when you go eek, and the roof goes. Yeah, or, that's a thing. No, so that is an option on newer Jeeps, but um, I don't have that. Okay, so, all right. Yeah. So, what do you got? Uh, a Willie's Army Jeep? Is that the Jeep basically? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Except it's with a machine gun on it. Except yeah, it's sorry, pink. Sorry. Except it's pink, and it has all yes. kinds of creature comforts. <laughs> and the machine gun except has a little push, flower in the barrel. With the exception of the yeah. push button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Um, no, it, it, yeah, other than that, what, what a shame bubbles. Audi don't make Jeeps. <laughs> well, it's no fun unless it's a little bit of work. Yeah. Right. Okay. How but many I, I did take screws? all the. I took the doors off. How many torque screws? Like four thousand. <laughs> She's not exaggerating. <laughs> no, I'm not. It's a lot. It's a lot. Anyway, that'll be fun. To what put you need is an engineer like Nick. <laughs> well, I, I immediately went to Amazon and found, you know, a, a set that had all of the appropriate bits. And I ordered that and it arrived today. So I don't know, maybe tomorrow I will start to work on it again. We'll that's, for the soft top. that's for the soft top. Well, it must be brackets or something like that. that you have to... It's all the brackets and all the, mm. yeah, yeah. Yuck. Um, and over the weekend, quite a lot of flying. Um we are, uh, you know, speaking of pilot shortage issues, um, not necessarily facing pilot shortage at uh, the place where I fly right now, but anticipating need for, um, you know, training future pilots to, to join our ranks. So had the pleasure of flying with um, two wonderful gentlemen, um, both reasonably, well, different, different types of experience. Um, and it's basically, they both did a, a fine job and I'm going to be flying a lot more with them, just getting them used to the type of flying that we do at the drop zone and what flying skydivers entails and how our aircraft operate and how we operate with our um, letter of agreement with the local controlling agency and all of that, which is kind of a lot of stuff. Um, but man, I, I know why I'm not a CFI. It's not for me. <laughs> I'll just say that much. <laughs> patience, um, Steph, patience. But it's going to be good. It's, it's probably good for me to, to exercise that teaching part of my brain a little bit. So looking forward to that again this 
upcoming weekend. Excellent. All right. Um, Nick, you've been a busy boy. Nick Camacho. <laughs> they, they both, did you see that they both looked at each other? They're like, <laughs> and I'm thinking, and then Liz is going, uh, which one? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was looking right at him. Can he not tell? <laughs> <laughs> Very obvious. On my screen. Which uh, yeah. So I, I think I've missed the last couple of shows. Um, I was gone for four or five days with the C47 and then uh, catching up last week. So I couldn't make the show. Um, but yeah, so the obviously the big thing that happened was we took the C forty seven from California to uh, across the country. It's in Virginia right now, awaiting the uh, Innovations in Flight event at the Smithsonian. Uh, that was an interesting couple of days for us. So uh, I sent Jeff some pictures that he's. I think he's going to show. I got them up. They're uh, on so the screen we, right now. Yep. So we have uh, recently changed the engines on this airplane. Um, there was a, basically a donor airplane that had new engines and then, um, the mission of that airplane changed and it was going to become a static display airplane, I believe, um, due to some airframe issues it had. And so, uh, we, uh, worked out a deal with the owner where we could, uh, swap the engines of that airplane because it had two low time engines. So we basically have two engines that uh, when they departed California, I think we had about six or seven hours on them on each side. And when we did that engine swap, we actually um, took the cowlings with the engines. So we swapped engines on both airplanes and we swapped cowlings on both airplanes. So we ended up with cowlings that uh, did not match our paint scheme oh. um, because they fit better and they were in slightly better shape and stuff like that. So um that was no big deal. The airplane was going to be in Wichita for an extra day. And the intent was we would just paint them all that was in Wichita. Um, the, uh, when they got there, the guys were talking about rolling the paint on, which isn't really a big deal. It's kind of a matte paint. So it's not as critical to, you know, shoot it with a gun and get it to flow and everything. Like, you know, you're normally trying to do with a gloss finish. Um, but what they found out is, as hot it is, as it is out here, um, by about 10 o'clock in the morning, while they were still cleaning all the uh, cowlings off, it got too hot for them to actually manage them or manipulate them. So I ended up taking all the cowlings off the airplane, cleaning them on the ground, and uh, went ahead and shot all the cowlings in my hangar. We put up, you know, we covered everything up and shot them with a gun. While that was happening, Shane, our captain, who's also one of our mechanics, um, started looking over all the engines. It was like opportune time because the cowlings were off of both of them. They had just flown nine hours the past couple of days. Um, so it was just kind of a good breaking point to do a quick inspection. Um, and he found a couple of minor things. And one of the minor things he found was a leak at our, a leak in the plumbing for the feathering pump. So these, um, these, these propellers work a little bit different than a, uh, than a GA, like a smaller GA propeller, uh, you know, feathers. So like, a lot of times when you're training in something like a Apache or a Duchess or flying a bear and something that has like a horizontally opposed engine, basically those propellers have a spring that, that spring loads it into the feather position. And then it uses oil pressure from the engine to uh, move it out of that feather position. So it's all internal to the engine and runs through the crankshaft and everything on our airplane. It actually uses uh, oil pressure, both directions to move the propeller and it has an external feathering pump so it it uh, it gets oil from the 
engine to run the uh, constant speed aspect of the prop, but then we have a, a feathering pump. And, and they, there was a leak in the uh, feathering pump plumbing. So Shane found that. So as we were getting ready to um, recal the airplane, we were going to do a quick engine run. We feathered it before we started the engine, which we can do with this pump. And we got the prop stuck in feather, uh, which is kind of an unfortunate situation. Uh, we then, initially we thought we had uh, broke our feathering pump, and then we thought we had some other issues. That happened at about uh, 8 p.m. Uh, the night before we were supposed to leave. We had to leave the next day by, uh, we had to depart at 7 in the morning um, because we had a special um, arrival that we were going to do. And so we ended up calling a bunch of people, working through the night, troubleshooting. And uh, finally at about uh, 10.30 that night, uh, we're talking to one of our DC3 gurus, and he basically gets super technical, so I'll leave that to the uh, Rick discussions. But basically, there was a mechanical advantage issue we'd created with running it with cold oil. And he said, yeah, if you just move the props out of feather manually, um, you should be fine. So we got a couple of two-by-fours. and Those we, big chopsticks. You know, yep, exactly. That's exactly what they look like, two giant <laughs> chopsticks. And we had, we had a set on the two lower prop blades and we had guys move them and we physically moved the propeller out of, out of the feather, um, setting and that solved it. So we got the airplane cowled back up, test ran at about one thirty in the morning, uh, went home, went to bed and made our departure, departure time of 7am the next day. Ooh, not a lot of sleep. Nope. Not a lot of sleep. Uh, all of that was for, uh, flying up to Dayton. We were going to the, uh, U.S. Air Force Museum and uh, meeting a couple other airplanes. So just now showing a picture of us. We're number three on the runway to Jeff. depart. No, he's um, not. We all flew into a, a little airport called Green County Airport just outside of Dayton. Hang on. I have to give credit. This is Liz doing the slides. Oh, sorry. Okay, Liz. <laughs> Liz's masterful depiction of our trip here. <laughs> yes. um, Got to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Jeff. All of this part of the stress of the night before was that we had a specific time frame we had to fly into Dayton because we were not flying into uh, Wright Pat, where all the main operations happen. There, we were actually flying into Wright Field, which is the closed runway that the museum is kind of built on. And so it was a kind of an ordeal, right, with the military. Um, Get, giving us all the permissions. They had to get like all the fire trucks out there. They had to coordinate with all the airspace people because we were landing on this closed runway. So the three of us departed and uh, flew over to Dayton, made it on time. It was kind of cool to land on the actual right uh, field runway. There's a bunch of X's on it. Not a lot of people get to do it. Um, <laughs> this doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was fun. So this was our departure. Uh, and then we spent uh, two or three days in Dayton, uh, a picture of the three airplanes. So they actually parked us on the runway. And then um, all of this was part of an event that weekend, uh, a basically a movie premiere for a documentary that was made about the Europe trip that all these aircraft went on. Um, so the museum was shuttling um, visitors out to the runway so they could look at our airplanes. And on Saturday night, we actually did a movie premiere in their theater. Um, so that was all quite a bit of fun. Uh, we were there for two days, well, parts of three days, I guess, two days in total. Um, 
as you guys are aware, it's an amazing place. Uh, we basically had um, all day Saturday and most of the day Sunday to go through everything, and it's still not enough time no. to get through everything. <laughs> need like a week. Uh, not even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, they had, uh, I think maybe the next slide or then one of the next couple of pictures, they had the Memphis bell. I couldn't remember if the Memphis bell was done when you guys went. Um, it's been recently completed here in the last couple of years. Uh, but that is an amazing, um, piece of equipment that they've restored. It's immaculately restored. And this weekend they had it opened up. They weren't allowing people to walk through it, but they had all their stands up to where you could walk up the stands and look in the nose and you could poke your head in the crude ore and the Bombay and uh, really get a good feel for the craftsmanship that was involved in restoring that airplane. And then here's a picture of our painting. And I threw this in here explicitly for Captain Nick. Uh, they took, they took a couple of panels off of our airplane and took them into, you know, the paint shop and the paint shop has like the digital machine that they can put over the and, and match it, match it perfectly. They say, <laughs> and if you look at uh, this airplane, the two pieces in the middle are the pieces that I painted. They got kind of close on the green. I wouldn't call it perfect. They got kind of close though. On the bottom for our gray, which we have kind of a medium gray bottom, they gave us British Spitfire blue. That's very nice. It's dark blue, <laughs> to be precise. It has like, kind of a I nice like accent. It. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, everybody was, you know, everybody was poking fun well, at us I for our half American, half British honoring you by giving okay. you a bit of spitfire. Hands across the ocean. Yes. <laughs> oh, is, that, is that the uh, piece that's like right behind the machine gun right there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. <laughs> the one that blows the prop off. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. What is Captain that, Jeff by the is way? referring to the, that is the air intake. So that's our exhaust right there. And, um, this airplane basically has a Volkswagen style heater. If anybody's familiar with like a Volkswagen bug heater. Rabbit or something. So mm -hmm. the exhaust has a whole bunch of um has a whole bunch of little features on it. And basically that tube is sucking air in, running it over the exhaust, and then putting it into the airplane. So that's how they heat the airplane. Ah. All right. Huh. Very good. Yep. Yeah, so not a very that, good color match, though. But I do like the fact that you stuck an American flag on top of the cowling. That looks really smart. <laughs> yeah. Also, definitely not in the way of the propeller. Right. <laughs> I don't think that was actually on the engine. Oh. Ah, I don't spoil it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Very well done, Nick. Yeah. yeah nice job. Nice. Thank you. So, yep. So then, uh, we moved the airplane from here to uh, Virginia on Monday, which was actually the uh, uh, actually June sixth. And man, it is always there is nothing cooler than uh, flying an invasion scheme C forty seven on June sixth. It does not matter the year. Oh, um, I bet um, it is yeah. just awesome. Yeah. So Brilliant. we had to make a few stops and passes along the way, um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we actually did, we, the three of us, the three airplanes at Dayton all flew together to Virginia. And then we uh, rendezvoused in air with uh, Miss Virginia, who is a Virginia-based airplane um, that was actually hosting the three of our airplanes. Um, and then we did a about a 20-minute tour through the Shenandoah Valley, hitting a number of hmm. um, places, uh, flying over a number of places. And then, uh, yeah, landed and put the airplanes up. Uh, at Dynamic for a couple of weeks and then uh, 
here in the next uh, two days. I think on Friday, uh, a couple of our other crew members, Sherman and Scott, are going to pick up the airplane and move it to Dulles on Saturday for innovations in flight. Nice. Cool. Brilliant. Is it going to be the only DC-3 or C-47 involved in that? There's actually going to be four. So there's going to be the three of us, the four of us that uh, flew to, the three of us that flew to Virginia, the one Mm -hmm. that joined us in Virginia, and then one more airplane that uh, flew to Europe in 2019. So, yep, that was was our trip. Uh, Then I got on an airplane and managed to catch two non-canceled airline flights in a row home. So that was great news. Did you buy a lottery ticket afterwards also? I will tell you, I was getting very nervous when I was seeing people on social media posting things like, oh, hey, we're sitting here in the terminal and Delta just started a lottery trying to select the people who they were going to bump off of their oversold flights. And it ended at $3,500 a ticket plus a hotel room for the night. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get home. But fortunately, I would have taken $3,500 in a hotel room probably. (laughs) <laughs> That's almost as much as they uh, pay the pilots. <laughs> um, yeah, it it wasn't. Uh, I should. I guess I shouldn't have said the name. A a well known. Oh, we're US major carrier. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there was a uh, and then riding to the riding on the shuttle to the airport as we were going there, there was a couple people on our on the shuttle who had said that they had gotten bumped off of American flights, um, American Airlines flights. So I was a little. Uh, worried, but fortunately I made it uh, with not much fanfare all the way home. And then uh, a couple days after I got home, I went to the FISDO for an interview for my AMP approval. Uh, and I got approved to go take the AMP practical tests, written and practical. So I'm excited Yay. for that. Yay! Yay! Way to go! Well done, sir. Well done. Yep. Thank you. I. I can't remember. I think we've talked about it before, but in the United States, there's two ways you can get an AMP. You can go to school, an approved school, and do it, or you can do it through experience. And they don't, the only way they define experience is uh, 30 months of full time work for the ANP or 18 months for the A or the P, for the airframe license or the power plant license. And so I have, uh, I've been kind of stressing out about it for probably two years maybe um, because all of my work has been, you know, part-time and a lot of times guys who do it by experience, right. They go work for a shop and they're working eight hours a day, five days a week and then getting paid for it. And so when they show up, they've got pay subs and they've got all this sort of stuff. And I just kind of been doing it on my own airplane, working on the C-47, working on friends airplanes. So I was a little worried about, I had heard some horror stories about, um, the FAA, you know, certain inspectors in the FAA not being real um, interested in, in assisting experienced, uh, experience-based AMPs. And so I have been fretting it and worrying about it for over a year. And uh, I showed up with all my paperwork, this giant stack of paperwork, a bunch of pictures of all the work that I'd done. And the guy that uh, the guy that was interviewing me started flipping through it and got through about the first three pages. And he was like, you know, you only – I had done – you know, about 80% of what I needed to do, 80 or 90% of the minimum. And he said, you only have to do 50% of this. And I said, yeah, I know, but I've been working for a long time on it. And he flipped through a few more pages. He's like, yeah, this makes my job pretty easy. And it was maybe 15 minutes in and out. And I got out of the building and I was like, man, 
I'm almost a little frustrated that it wasn't harder than that, but <laughs> I will take it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, quite right too. Well done. Awesome. That's great. All right. Wow. You have been a busy man. Um, yeah. So those of you out there who uh, are going to be at Innovations in Flight in uh, at Dulles, uh, the Udvrahazi uh, Center. Center. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of the uh, uh, Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum at uh, the Udvrahazi Center. Anyway, uh, check out the uh, great uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. C-47 while you're there. Yeah, and so you're going to be there, uh, Nick, uh, did you say, or not? No, no, I'm not going to be there. Oh, well. Nope. Okay, great. Uh, well, it was great having you on uh, the last time uh, on this show. So appreciate all that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Inside joke. Inside joke. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, glad you're uh, back with us. And um all those things we keep saying we're going to do for you, I'm sure we'll get around to it eventually. <laughs> um, Just like we're going with Instagram. Maybe. Posting. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Captain Nicholas Anderson. Uh, yes, Captain Nielsen. Yes, sir. How have you been, uh, sir? I've been pretty good. Thanks very much. Uh, as you could tell, if you're watching the video from my strange collar, I'm actually wearing my... Uh, lawn bowling uniform because uh, I've been playing a lot of bowls and um, uh, not doing so well in some areas, but, you know, there are a couple of competitions I'm still in, so I'm very pleased with that. Today is uh, the county, was the county unbadged singles. Uh, so uh, if you are really good, uh, county player, you'll you'll be awarded with the county badge, and one of the ways to get one is to enter a singles competition. And if you get all the way through to the, you know, last four or whatever, then uh, they will give you automatically give you a county badge. So that's the point of this. Uh, and um, tonight I got through my match uh, by ten shots, which was kind of good. So. Uh, looking at the uh, competition, I am through to the final of my area. Uh, there are eight areas in the county, so it's not that big a deal. But uh, if I get through the next round uh, and uh, win the uh, area competition, then I'll uh, only three more rounds uh, to get the um, to win the unbadged competition, which would be quite something. I'm not anticipating doing that. This is the furthest I've ever got through, so pleased with that. Oh, nice. uh, still in the open singles, uh, for which everyone can enter, uh, and uh, basically having a grand time in the lovely weather we've currently got. Um, on a slightly different note, uh, we. Uh, went across to uh, Glenn's funeral. Uh, I say we because uh, uh, Pilot Pitt was there, uh, as was uh, Neville Bounds of uh, PTUK uh, and Pilot Pitt, of course, uh, Plane Safety Podcast. Uh, we all decided to uh, go across to the funeral, which was quite a, uh, a drive uh, for me, let alone uh, the other two who had to come uh, even further. Uh, but uh, very much uh, worthwhile seeing everything and uh, being able to sort of represent all our listeners uh, who, uh, you know, take, take part in uh, our podcasts like Glenn did. 
uh, and um, you know who perhaps couldn't make it because after all you know we're a little island and a lot of our listeners around the world so we, we were we were keen to go there and sort of represent everybody that couldn't make it and I, I asked the family if they wouldn't mind if I took a few pictures uh, which I did and uh, it was lovely to see um, Glenn's coffin draped with both the uh, Union flag and the New Zealand flag. Uh, uh, the uh, gentleman with the uh, standard, the big flag there, was is uh, in the British Legion. And during the uh, service, of course, we heard the eulogy, which um, told me lots of things about Glenn Taylor that I didn't know before. Uh, in that he uh, had served, I knew he'd served in the British Army. I didn't know he'd served in the New Zealand Army as well. Uh, there's the lovely lady who uh, read the eulogy. Uh, and um, it was a very, very nice uh, sort of service. Uh, lots, of, um, lots of stories about Glenn. And those of you who sent in comments uh, on social media uh, will have heard Many of them read out, though well, many of them were read out during the service, which I think was fabulous. And I think the family began to get an inkling then of Glenn's popularity. Uh, he, of course, lived the other side of the world from them, and uh, they didn't necessarily get together very often. Uh, and uh, I think that they were a little taken aback by uh, the fact that Glenn was known and loved by so many people all around the planet, which I think um, um, opened their eyes a little bit and made it even more poignant when they realised what a popular uh, and well-known person he was. Uh, so I'm really glad that the Royal British Legion were able to bring a standard bearer or send a standard bearer. We had I had a chat with him, very nice. Um, the crematorium was in a beautiful area uh, with fantastic gardens, uh, mainly wildflower, natural-looking but it's, it was a super part of the countryside with a lovely old uh, church nearby, uh, and you can see it. It looked fantastic. And um, he, of course, Glenn was over uh, here in the UK um, to uh, take part in his mother's funeral, and it was while he was here that he fell so dreadfully ill so quickly. Uh, and so the family there had a tree um, planted in the grounds that they were, they were going to use to uh, commemorate their mother's passing. And, of course, Glenn going at the same time, that's now uh, forms a dual purpose. So uh, Glenn, they will have a plaque with both um, Glenn's mother and his name on. So... If ever uh, you are visiting the United Kingdom and uh, perhaps want to pay your respects, it, it's at the Thames View uh, Crematorium in uh, Gravesend, uh, which is kind of a I guess, sort of an apt name, really. If you're yeah. going to be buried, be, be buried at Gravesend. But uh, it's in the um, uh, the southeastern corner of uh, sort of London on the edge of. Uh, of Kent, London sort of area. Anyway, uh, it was great. It was great to catch up with Pip and Nev. Uh, you know, often you meet friends at such sad occasions, but uh, it was uh, it was definitely worth while going. Uh, so that was uh, part of my week. 
uh, and uh, the rest really was spent trying to catch up with uh, doing this week's Plane Tower, which I had great fun doing, so I hope yeah, you enjoy it as well. All right. I just, Nick, I just wanted to say thank you for going and kind of being a representation for all of us because, you know, um, had it been easier or different circumstances. Absolutely. That was gone. absolutely my yeah, pleasure. I, I knew that there were lots of people who would love to have been there. Uh, and since I was, you know, only a couple of hours away, I thought it was the absolute least I could do would uh, jump in the car and make sure I was there uh, to uh, say goodbye to the old fella. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. On behalf of all of us. Uh, no problem at all. All right. Um, Jeffrey. Me? I'll just do make it quick. Yeah. I haven't yes. uh, been too busy. I um, had, you know, last show with Steph and Charlotte, I was having issues with suppressing my cough, if you'll recall. And uh, that continued to proceed into my vocal cords and chest. It didn't get too, too, uh, ingrained or whatever in my in my chest cavity i was able to uh take some uh, decongestants off. and fight it off uh and kept it from you know getting too bad in my chest area but um my vocal cords must have been covered with all that junk and uh i got to the point where um i almost i got really close to calling in sick because i couldn't really hardly eke out more than one or two words at a time and i'm thinking eh may not be a good idea if I need to bark out commands or make PAs in an emergency, but I, I figured, you know, I think I have enough in me that I can do this. And so uh, the first day of the trip uh, yesterday was still about 50%. I had um, Kurt do most of the uh, of the PAs for me. I was still able to talk on the radio and everything else. And now it's much much improved. My voice right now is so much better than it has been in the last week. I did. I wasn't even able to <laughs> sing at all um, on Saturday and Sunday at my church. And uh, bless her heart, my uh, choir director, uh, uh, she and her uh, daughter and her daughter's fiance uh, came by the house and, and brought uh, some items from a couple sandwiches from Starbucks and a big giant venti uh, mist, minty mist or whatever. It's like a uh, uh, an herbal mint tea with honey in it to help my voice. Um, and so that was really nice of her to do that for me. Um, anyway, uh, that storm system that Steph was talking about, you're not kidding. It was moving fast because when we left Atlanta to go to Myrtle beach on the first leg of our four day trip, um, it, you could see it off in the distance. And I'm thinking, Thank goodness we're not flying into Charlotte today because it was just a mess. People were holding and everything else. It was, it was bad. And then we were thinking, well, at least, you know, it's staying up there uh, north of our route. It shouldn't affect us coming back from Myrtle Beach to Atlanta. And sure enough, it was like really moving fast to the south. And uh, yeah, it, it was I, definitely blocking our path. When I woke up in the morning, um, you know, this is only maybe, well, you can work out the math based on the speed they said it was moving, but the system was moving south at 55 miles an hour. It's pretty quick for a storm system. Yeah, I kept every and time just like the an isolated line of radar would refresh. Storms. It was like, whoa, it's like really moved significantly from oh, the yeah. last time I saw it. That's why I was like, ooh, I got to I gotta go. Got to get to work. <laughs> yeah, so we had to do a major southerly deviation to get around it, but we, we made it in with with uh, with no problem back into and then once we could you go faster than that storm in your little airplane 55 we're no right at 50 miles an hour i think <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, Nick, um, Nick would have struggled. That's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then from that point on, you know, we headed west. And uh, other than just being really super hazy because of all the heat and the high pressure cap and all that kind of stuff, uh, it was uh, uh, pretty nice. And so uh, today the weather was nice coming back to Atlanta. And then now I'm, I find myself in northwest Arkansas in uh, Walmartville. And uh, it's just really hot and windy here, but uh, no thunderstorms. So I think that we're going to be able to avoid uh, convective activity on this four-day trip. So, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, one of our fans, in fact, one of our big-ass fans, (laughs) Greg Peterson and I are going to meet up for lunch or dinner. And if you're in the Lexington area and you're watching the show right now live, <laughs> otherwise you're not going to make it. Uh, you're not going to hear about this until after the fact. But uh, if you want to join us uh, for lunch or dinner, just contact me, Jeff, at AirlinePilotGuy.com and let me know. And we'll try to include you in our little mini meetup. And, cover uh, art. Cover yeah. art. Yeah. Let's do the cover art. Liz is cracking that whip. Let's let get me going. Find it. Your well, stuff is not really not that interesting, good. Jeff. So. Move on. Um, <laughs> she's so mean. I know. Um, yeah, she's not really. Uh, there is the cover art from our last episode, Pilot Deviation, and one of those modern phones uh, with a <laughs> with a dialer. Well, I'm trying to, in keeping with the FAA. Oh, yes, okay. I- <laughs> That's coming from Captain Nick Anderson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> not not right any of us who are affected by the FAA currently. <laughs> you know, I missed a trick there. I should have called it FAA uh, Deviant Department mm, uh, as yeah. opposed to Deviation Department. So I uh, yeah. missed a trick there. Bunch of deviants on the show. Yeah, I like uh, I like what you did there, and I like uh, the uh, APG uh, in the uh, number two hole, I guess you could call it. Ooh, that doesn't sound right. Uh, the, on the dial. Number two on the dial. Well, there's a show title if I ever oh, I think it was, you know, APG subconscious in the number commentary. Two <laughs> As it was coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, what are you saying right now, you well, idiot? Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, the show, the show numbers. Yeah, right the show number the uh, there on the dial, and uh, yeah, it was very clever as usual. Thank you very much, Captain Nick. Well, actually, that was a nice, simple one that week. So, thanks for the suggestion. Yeah. There we go. All right. Okay, coffee fun. And coffee fun time. So let's quickly play this. I don't know. I'm going to try to sing, but it may not work out very well. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure Let's see how this goes. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yeah, the lower end of my range is okay, I think. Anyway, coffee fun. It's your way to support the show financially. And a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, one is the Coffee Fund Classic method. And since the last episode, no uh, individual donations, as I mentioned before. Uh, now, we're, if you're doing a recurring donation, just like our patrons do, uh, we're not going to mention you on uh, each show. Hope you don't mind. Um, oh, and that brings me uh, to a point. If you are making one-offs or two-offs or whatever donations to the Coffee Fund via the Coffee Fund Classic method, um, and you want to have access to the private 
crew log fee, uh, feed, uh, the private RSS feed, please contact me and uh, I'll, I'll get you set up like I did. You know with, those crew uh, logs that you guys Donna. are doing? Okay, so we haven't, Donna, I'm sorry, Donna. Um, yeah, we Liz, we haven't done a lot of crew logs lately, but there's a, quite a, a backlog, a catalog of them. Just out want there, to manage right? their expectations. Okay, yeah. Thank you for managing their expectations, Liz. Okay, the other way to <laughs> support the show via the Coffee Fund is the uh, to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a new executive producer, Al Shay in Israel, signed Shai. up to be an executive. Al, is that right? Shai, I think. Shai? Shai. Oh, okay. I think. Um, thank you, Al, for becoming a patron of our show. We really appreciate it. So if you want to find out more about how you become can become part of our Coffee Fun Cadre or Coffee Bar Club, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And now, let's uh, do the plain tale. Because Nick needs to get some sleep tonight. So we're going to move it over here and I'm going to find very quickly and deftly uh, the, uh, the uh, plane one tale. and a half hour mark. Okay, thank you. Uh, here we go. Uh, this week's plane tale installment is entitled Oh Canada, are you UFO? Something, something. No, that didn't work. Yeah. Oh Canada, so our <laughs> UFO. Here we go. The old pilot's plane tale. Oh Canada, our UFO. Amid lurid advertisements for how to stumble upon a fortune in gems, you have to buy the Gem Hunter's Guide, of course. How to bend cosmic forces to your will. You join the Rosicrucians and receive their sealed book or a testimonial from a popular movie star who assures the readers of this scientific magazine that he can't risk throat irritation, so he smokes camels because they're mild, is an article about a new Air Force night fighter, the Scorpion. The first look inside the F-89 shows a cutaway drawing which exposes the innards of a powerful all-weather interceptor. Radar equipped, the plane is powered by two Allison J-35 turbojets with afterburners for bursts of extra power. Considering the dubious nature of some of the articles in this delightful 1950s publication, their description of the Northrop F-89 Scorpion was pretty accurate. The United States Army Air Force had seen a need for an all-weather fighting aircraft to replace the earlier P-61 Black Widow, the Air Force's first purpose-built night fighter. They had specified a twin-engined fighter armed with internal rockets and six machine guns or cannons which could reach 530 miles an hour of the aircraft, not the cannons, just about ensuring that it would have to be jet-powered. Bell, Consolidated Valti, Douglas, Goodyear, perhaps they were going to contribute a balloon, Northrop and Curtis Wright all submitted proposals and two, the Curtis Wright XP-87 Blackhawk 
and the Northrop XP-89 moved forward to the prototype stage. Three aircraft went into a fly-off, the XF-87, the XF-89 and the Navy XF-3D Skynight. Despite being powered by four Westinghouse XJ-34 turbojets, the Black Hawk couldn't reach the required speed. The Northrop aircraft proved to be the fastest, and one test pilot claimed that it was the only real fighter, comparing the other contenders to a medium bomber and a trainer. The newly formed USAF chose the Northrop aircraft to go forward. Jack Northrop's design was a slim-bodied, swept-wing aircraft with a two-man pressurised cockpit and conventional tricycle gear. The two Allison J-35 afterburning turbojets were buried in the lower fuselage and exhausted underneath the narrow rear fuselage. It ended up with a small fin holding a mid-mounted horizontal stabiliser which gave the aircraft the look of a scorpion, the name given to it by the Northrop employees and adopted by the Air Force. However, by the time the aircraft came into service, the F-89 had thin straight wings, a more powerful afterburning engine, and the radar-laid gun turrets were replaced by six conventional forward-firing Hispano cannons. In the nose lay an ANARG-33 radar for the rear crew member to operate, and the fuel capacity had been increased by adding fixed wingtip tanks. Before we get on to the story of the F-89 participating in the interception of a Canadian intergalactic spacecraft, it is worth mentioning that Scorpion had other claims to fame. Aviation buffs will undoubtedly know that the aircraft participated in the 1950s Howard Hughes movie, starring our aforementioned camel-smoking actor who wanted his vocal cords unirritated, and Janet Leigh. John Wayne called the movie too stupid for words, but it was reportedly Hugh's favourite film, which he watched repeatedly in his later years. The other great story involving the F-89 is often referred to as the Battle of Palmdale. The instigator of this disastrous battle was, as you might have suspected, the US Navy leading many to think that they should stick to sailing ships and making the occasional Top Gun movie. It all started at Mr Magoo's Naval Air Station during the development of the AIM-7 Sparrow missile. Various drones were being used to test the missile's effectiveness by volunteering to get shot down, one of which was a Grumman F-6F Hellcat. On a clear day in August 1956, this particular Hellcat, painted bright red, was being prepared by the Navy for its final mission, before being sent off to head west, over the Pacific Ocean, to a final rendezvous with an AIM-7. At the forenoon watch of seven bells, 11.30 in the morning, to the Air Force, the brave Hellcat was launched and guided towards the missile range by the Navy but then everything went a bit haywire. 
The Hellcat had decided that a better life lay in a new direction, and like the crew of the USS Somers in 1842, it mutinied. The controllers watched in dismay as their target started a gentle left-hand climbing turn to the southeast towards the sprawling city of Los Angeles. The Navy claimed that they had no aircraft available capable of dispatching the drone. One wonders what their AIM-7 bearing fighter was doing at the time. So they called in the Air Force. At Oxnard Air Force Base, some five miles north, sat the 437th Fighter Intercept Squadron, who, I suspect, thought it must be Christmas and immediately scrambled two F-89D Scorpions. In the interceptor were First Lieutenant Einstein, yes, really, and his radar observer, First Lieutenant Murray, followed by First Lieutenant Herliman and First Lieutenant Hale. They headed south in full afterburner and soon caught up with the drone at 30,000 feet, northeast of L.A. The drone crossed the city and then circled slowly over Santa Paula, while the Scorpion pilots waited for it to fly over an unpopulated area so that they could attack with their mighty mouse 2.75-inch folding fin rockets. I previously mentioned the use of unguided rockets in air-to-air combat, and in the 50s they were the latest big thing. A simple ballistic rocket, the folding fin aerial rocket Mark IV, carried a warhead that could bring down a sizable bomber if it was unlucky enough to get hit. I say that because the Mighty Mouse was not an accurate weapon. As a result, it was generally fired in large volleys, which might have worked well against big formations of large bombers, since on launch the rockets dispersed to cover the area of an entire football field, in which, today, there hid a single wildcat. The Scorpion's first attacks were made in the new completely automatic mode, which, sadly, failed due to a previously unknown design fault, and the mice refused to leave their little holes. After all, there was a nasty wildcat out there. There was, luckily, the opportunity to switch to manual mode, but such was the confidence in the new Hughes attack computer, someone had decided to remove the gun sights, leaving the unfortunate pilots with no way of aiming other than to use their seaman's eye. For those not familiar, the seaman's eye is an old naval term referring to that special quality of judgment which is allotted to experienced sailors. Sadly, these were junior Air Force officers, not seamen. Not to worry, a single hit would suffice to bring down the drone, even if it wasn't cooperating and meandering around the sky. They lined up and dispatched 42 rockets in salvos, but were a little dismayed when none hit their target. Another attack ensued, and then another, until 208 mighty mice had been dispatched to no effect whatsoever. In the air, that is. And the drone droned on. 
low on fuel, and with their scorpion tails firmly between their legs, the Air Force left the scene and headed home. The score of failures was now a tie, Navy 1, Air Force 1. The Hellcat, having decided that the desert near Palmdale Regional Airport would be a nice place to live, spiralled down and plonked itself into the sand, but not before cutting three overhead electric cables in a final reckless gesture. On the ground underneath this impromptu firing range, the inhabitants of Catsteak and Placerita Canyon, the Burmite Powder Explosives Plant and Palmdale, watched with dismay as the rockets hit the ground, exploding and unleashing clouds of shrapnel. Bushfires were started, windows smashed, Oil sumps set alight, a car was peppered, a truck was destroyed and one rocket, burst through a front window, ricocheted off the ceiling, ploughed through a wall and came to rest in a kitchen cupboard. It took 500 firefighters two days to bring the bushfires under control. 1,000 acres were burned out, but amazingly there were no fatalities. Sadly, not so in the story that titles this tale, that of the Canadian UFO. Of course, not all Canadian aircraft are classified as UFOs, nor are many people from the cold end of North America thought of as aliens, unless attempting to enter across the 49th parallel, plus the wiggly bits, illegally. But that was the situation on the 23rd of November 1953. The U.S. Air Defense Command radar system had detected an intruder over Lake Superior. The radar operators were tracking the target, in particular those of Sault-Saint-Marie. The area the aircraft was flying through was restricted, so an F-89 from Kin Ross Air Base was scrambled to intercept and identify it. On board was First Lieutenant Monclar with his radar operator, 2nd Lieutenant Wilson, sitting behind him. The weather that night wasn't great, with an overcast cloud base between two and 3,000, tops at five to 8,000, and about 8 miles visibility in snow showers. But that shouldn't have been a challenge for a radar-equipped, all-weather night fighter. On a westerly course, initially under the control of Ground Control Intercept Station Naples, and then GCI Pillow, the Scorpion was directed to the target at 7,000 feet. They were turned to head 020, which put the intruder at 11 o'clock to the fighter, range 10 miles. The controllers watched as the two radar returns about 150 miles northeast from Kinross Air Force Base, 70 miles off Kiwinor Point, as they closed. As expected during an intercept, the radar returns eventually merged as the fighter came alongside the target, but then the IFF transponder return from the fighter was lost and never re-emerged from the target's large radar return. The F-89 had disappeared. There was concern that the two aircraft had collided, but the single target continued on as if nothing had happened. The Scorpion crew failed to reply to radio calls and could not be found on radar. 
Despite deteriorating weather conditions, search and rescue action was taken by both the United States Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force, but they failed to find any trace of the missing aircraft or its crew. However, rumours abounded. The 50s and 60s were a period of intense interest in the phenomena of alien unidentified flying objects. Amplified by public interest in the space race and compounded by the Cold War, more reports of flying saucers, flying cigars, flying eggs, alien abductions, alien probing, alien lovers and the like occurred than in any other period in history. Unexplained mysteries like vanishing aircraft were immediately and irrevocably connected to visitors from outer space, and the incident of the missing scorpion was no exception. A number of quite believable theories were put forward. According to one, the jet had crashed into the UFO's protective beam like a concrete wall. Others speculated that the jet may have been scooped out of the air and taken aboard the spacecraft so the captured men could teach their alien captors the English language. Over the years, what was now called the Kinross Incident, or as I like to call it, those terrible Canadian aliens, received even more attention, particularly from a group called the Great Lakes Dive Company. This organisation claimed to have searched the lakes with a new wide-trajectory side-scan sonar, and on their first pass, located an object on the bottom. It was a plane, and the scans proved it was an F-89. In addition, they provided sonar images of a disc-shaped metallic structure that resembled every boy's idea of a flying saucer. However, as the media frenzy grew, the dive company cut all contact with reporters and vanished. It was soon discovered that the company had never existed, being unknown to local divers and lacking any official registration or license. Many realised it was a hoax, but believers just assumed the disappearance was, of course, all part of an elaborate government cover-up. The official USAF report indicated that the most likely cause was disorientation, leading to a loss of control and a crash. Equally likely was that the Scorpion, in an attempt to slow to the target's low speed, stalled and span into the cold lake below. The F-89 pilot certainly didn't have a lot of recent instrument practice. Only 27 hours 30 in the past six months, and less than eight hours of night flying in the past 60 days. The United States Air Force concluded that the target aircraft had been a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 transport, flying 30 miles off its flight plan, something that the Canadian authorities, being aliens and in cahoots with the government, would not confirm. However, years later, someone found the pilot of that aircraft. In written comments, he stated, I remember the flight reasonably well and just checked my logbook to confirm the date. It was a night flight. We were probably at seven or 9,000 feet over a solid cloud deck below and absolutely clear sky above. 
somewhere near Sault Ste. Marie and north of Kinross Air Force Base. I think the ground station asked us if we had seen another aircraft's lights in our area. I do think I recall them saying at the time that the USAF had scrambled an interceptor and they'd lost contact with it. We replied that we'd not seen anything. A few days later, I received a phone call from somebody at Kinross who was carrying out an investigation on a missing aircraft. I could only tell them that we had seen nothing. That was the last I ever heard of the incident. So, as Mulder says... Unsolved mysteries. The truth is out there. Those Canadians. Shifty people. Oh. You can't trust them, Jeff. I know. No. <laughs> They're a worry. They, they are definitely a worry. And I think, I don't think just a few of them. I think they're probably all aliens. All, yeah. yeah. National yeah. trait. I knew it. Yeah. Mm. They're so the darn nice. Darn nice. This, yeah, they're way too nice to yeah, be humans. Exactly. <laughs> this, uh, this probably isn't what you were looking for, for me to glean from that story, Nick. But I did want to just point out that that Royal Canadian Air Force scheme on the C-47 is a pretty sharp-looking airplane. It is, actually. I, I thought so myself because it, it resembles uh, the Royal Air Force Transport Command uh, scheme of the same era. But it does look good. And I particularly like the uh, the little shapes around the um, cowlings uh, mm -hmm. and the fact that they line beautifully that zigzag uh, up with the top and then uh, the cockpit, bottom of the cockpit, and then the nose. They, yeah. The only bit wrong with it is that funny-looking maple leaf. What's leaf that? in the middle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm coming, I'm but, coming uh, in with I, the comments. I have to say, I, I okay. thought the Battle of Pyre. <laughs> yes, there they are. Those damn not, not, to get, not to get technical, Nick, but that was not our flag back in the 1950s. Yeah, well, that, that's a time traveling UFO, Liz. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, quite right. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That's my, my mistake. Um, Everybody yeah, knows I, that. I, Come on. That, that, I, when, I, um, when I found the Battle of Palmdale, I thought I have got to tell this story. <laughs> it was the funniest thing I had ever heard. And of course, then I began to realize that the Canadians were involved, so that made it an absolute <laughs> must in this particular funny. story. That Scorpion uh, was, the, and all those rockets. Uh, that was that was quite a. Uh, yes. At the time, probably wasn't a very funny story, but it is now. <laughs> no, absolutely, two hundred and eight rockets, and they couldn't hit one drone. Mm. I thought oh, that was brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is I love that music. I'm, I'm really <laughs> digging that. <laughs> well, I tried to find something of the period and that was vaguely amusing to go with because I've not really a, I'm, I'm obviously very sorry about the loss of life. Yeah. That poor uh, a Scorpion crew that uh, went off into the night and never came home again. That's mm. obviously very sad. But the rest of it is uh, actually, I thought, quite amusing. Yeah. And, of course, it uh, follows last week's with a, a Northrop success, uh, whereas last week yeah. we had the Flying Wing. This week we had the Scorpion, which was one of their – Northrop dud. Actually, yeah, exactly. So that was, I thought that was cool. <laughs> very well done. Well, 
I see you looking at your watch, and it is past time, so I think that you yeah. need to uh, yeah, call I'm it quits for this episode and uh, hit the sack. I've got another match later today because it's now slipped past midnight, and uh, I just want to thank you very much, Dave, for letting me come on just for this short time and uh, enjoy the rest of the show, and uh, I look forward to hearing your ideas for a title tomorrow. Got, I'm sure you'll love it. have already written down. Oh. <laughs> Here, here's an idea. Uh, uh, John Wayne's quote, um, too, too stupid, stupid for, for words. words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very <laughs> true. Yeah, he didn't think much of that movie. By the way, for the film buffs out there who haven't worked it out, it was called Jet Pilot. It was the name of that movie, by oh. the way. I didn't actually mention that in the story. No. I don't know why, but uh, there you go, Jet Pilot. I'm not familiar with it. Well, Mike, I'm sure uh, Mike will um, certainly yeah, have a mention um, Mike Kuypers. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm okay. sure. There you go. Mike probably have seen that at least once. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, interesting story of uh, Cold War um, defection. There you All go. Right. right. All right. I'm off. Well, good night. Have a good rest. Thanks for of everything. It was our honor having you well. with us. Super. Well, I enjoyed it. All the best. Bye. Bye. I'm trying to deflect your idea for the uh, uh, APG in the number two hole or whatever it is I said. Micah says, don't get familiar with it. It's a terrible, terrible film. And yeah. Oh. Paper says, I have it on DVD. <laughs> so, so John Wayne was right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Okay, well, we've got just over an hour, about an hour and five minutes to go. We have a just over an hour. Uh, or we'll just say approximately an hour remaining in our show. And that should uh, be just enough time for us to do some feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okay, let's see here. Let me scroll back up to the beginning of our feedback list. And let's start off with a uh, all-points bulletin. Well, not really an all-points bulletin, but... A, uh, a general uh, bulletin for those of you who may be in Gubby's part of the world, or at least where he is right now. He sent us in some feedback. He said, uh, hey, chaps and chappuses. <laughs> I'm not sure I pronounced that. <laughs> chappuses. Uh, Gubby here, new in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and now Liz and I weren't sure if you meant new in Abu Dhabi or now in Abu Dhabi. But either way, new he's in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Huh? New to Abu Dhabi? Or new to, yeah. Could be. Uh, he said he's keen to widen the circle of his friends and wondering if there are any APG listeners out in uh, Abu Dhabi who'd want to congregate and chat over a beverage and some food and make fun of the crew members and especially the producer director Liz that wacky Canadian <laughs> actually I added that all that last part uh, he said he's wondering if anybody over there in Abu Dhabi might want to get together to congregate and ha- chat over a beverage and some food happy for you to share my email address if anyone is interested keep up the good work Gubby so if you're in that part of the world and you want to meet up with Gubby, I've met up with him before and he's a nice guy. So uh, no harm. You don't have to fear anything. Um, and uh, you can send the uh, email to us and then we can forward it to Gubby. Uh, so send it to uh, meetup at airlinepilotguy.com or Jeff 
at airlinepilotguide.com or feedback at airlinepilotguide.com. And then we'll get everybody connected and then we'll, we'll hook everybody await. up. Yeah, we'll hook everybody up and we'll await that uh, absolutely fabulous meetup audio and video, video slash yeah. pictures and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the sort of stuff that I always do when I'm on a meetup. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah, yeah. Like you're going right. to do tomorrow with Greg. <laughs> well, no, that I don't normally do that sort of thing with just one person, but, you know. <laughs> oh, that was not a good thing to say either. Uh, okay. You know, if, any, if actually, anyone else has more than one person any, is like, better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I only find myself wishing on shows like this that I had the capability to clip and save some of these for drops for future. I, I guess I'm not 100% yet. I don't know what I'm saying. Brain fog. Yeah, brain fog, yeah. All right. Uh, continuing on with uh, 3B from Rob. Uh, he said, hello, Commander Liz, Captain Jeff, the APG crew and community. Right. Uh, Rob here from even further down under in New Zealand. Being a few months behind the rest of the world with the pandemic, we are finally seeing an easing of travel restrictions and already welcoming back our lovely Australian neighbors in a, in a couple of months, the rest of the world. It's great to see more aircraft being brought back online and pilots getting back into the air. We've had most of the air shows canceled over the last couple of years, so looking forward to those coming back and maybe a New Zealand APG Syndrome support group meetup. A lot of counseling required here. Yeah. Um, not not only for I'm the not, APG I'm Syndrome. I'm not sure if a lot of just, progress is made yeah. during those support sessions. No. If anything, I think it just makes things a little worse. Yeah, I think you're right. But it's worth it. It's it okay. absolutely is. Anyway, the following popped up on one of my aviation group pages and thought it might give a smile. Please ignore if this has already been read on a previous episode. I'm still working my way through past episodes. It's all part of the syndrome. Yeah, we know. Sorry. Thanks again to you all for the wonderful podcast and along with the rest of the community. It really does feel like a family. Best regards and happy landings. New Zealand, Rob. So the, for those of you who are new to the show and you've heard this uh, APG syndrome thing. Here's what they're talking about. APG syndrome. APG syndrome. That's part of the screaming is part of it. Uh, so the APG syndrome is when people are compelled uh, against their will to uh, go back and listen to all of the previous APG episodes. And there are only 524 before this one. So get to work. All right. Um, easily done. Easily, easily done in just a couple of days. If you listen at 10x <laughs> speed, maybe not even 10x, maybe 20x. Anyway, uh, these are the, or this is what. New Zealand Rob sent in or NZ Rob NZ Rob sent in pilots are people who drive airplanes for other people who can't uh, passengers are people who say they fly, but really just ride uh, fighter pilots are steely eyed weapons systems managers who kill bad people and break things. However, they can also be very charming and personable. We know one fighter pilot and that kind of describes him pretty well. I think 
Uh, the mm-hmm. average fighter pilot, despite sometimes having a swaggering exterior, is very much capable of such feelings as love, affection, intimacy, and caring. However, these feelings don't involve anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, flying is a hard way to earn an easy living. Okay. I see that. Uh, both optimists and pessimists contribute to society. The optimist invents the airplane. The pessimist, the parachute. Hmm. Your stuff. Maybe you know something about that. Um, You're both an know. optimist and a pessimist. I, I think the optimist also invents the parachute. Right? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I would say the pessimist doesn't use the parachute. Doesn't use the parachute. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Eh. Forget it. Don't need a darn parachute. Uh, death is just nature's way of telling you to watch your airspeed. Yeah. Oh, That's good advice. Uh, as a pilot, only two bad things can happen to you, and one of them will. And one of them will. One day you will walk out to the aircraft knowing it's your last flight. One day you will walk out to the aircraft not knowing it is your last flight. That's good. Kind of reminds me of. Uh, Captain Nick's um, retirement. Yeah. He didn't uh, know it was going to be his last flight. No. He had the back issue and then he uh, mm-hmm. went out and on he... sick leave and then retired. Turned into a pumpkin. Yeah. Um, let's see. These are rules and there, uh, there are rules and there are laws. The rules are made by men who think that they know how to fly your airplane better than you. Uh, the laws of physics were ordained by God. You can and sometimes should suspend the rules, but you can never suspend the laws. Uh, Let's see about rules. The rules are a good place to hide if you don't have a better idea and the talent to execute it. If you deviate from a rule, it must be a flawless performance. For example, if you fly under a bridge, don't hit the bridge. Anyway, um, and then finally we'll end with this one uh, and we'll put the rest in the show notes. They're they're all very clever. Uh, Before each flight, make sure that your bladder is empty and your fuel tanks are full. All right. Any others you want to quote before we move on? Nah, they're just going to go in the show notes, I think, but they're all excellent. Yeah. Thank you, uh, NZ Rob, for your feedback. We do appreciate it. Glad that everything is starting to move along properly in New Zealand. Um, this one, we actually received this, uh, for a while and it's just been, uh, we've been pushed onto one show after another, and we're finally getting to it. Uh, Colin, the flying meteorologist, um, and the title of his feedback is the unknown APG 521 weather chart. Hi, APG crew. So the only unknown... four shows ago. We didn't. Yeah, I guess that wasn't that long ago. I just keep yeah, moving it just along like to the long. next slideshow every time we do a new show. Um, <laughs> So it wasn't really that long ago. The unknown weather chart from APG 521 is a color enhanced, sometimes called false color water vapor satellite image. Remember, it was like a bright um, uh, image of red, very, yeah, showing, red uh, and orange. Showing it right now. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, the approximate holding position of this um, aircraft, I think it was a 787, and uh, they ended up um, having encountering ice. And uh, we believe that type of ice that they encountered was hail because they had a lot of damage to the nose cone and some of the um, uh, skin of the uh, aircraft. And so we were all kind of 
scratching our heads trying to figure out what kind of a, what kind of a chart or whatever we were looking at, image we were looking at. And so he's straightening us, straightening us, us out. Wow, I can't talk. Uh, regarding that. So with this enhancement, the red color means that the air is dry. If the air was moist, the color would be white, blue, green. Basically, the article is pointing at air that was bone dry. <laughs> oh, that's where you get the ice. <laughs> uh, the Aviation Herald article caption claimed to have used the GOES or uh, Golf Oscar Echo Sierra West satellite at the event time. However, due to the viewing angle of GOES West, I'm a bit skeptical. I'm also a bit skeptical that the image is valid at the time Aviation Herald said it was. Regardless of my skepticism, meteorologists would not typically use one of the water vapor bands for convective storm tracking. Uh, you could use WV if you wanted. The long wave infrared channel band 13 would be better suited for this task. I mean, I... Duh. I think I said the same thing when we covered duh. this. Yeah, um, obviously. Well, <laughs> obviously, <everyone> duh. <laughs> I've attached a, a GIF or a GIF of GOES East Band 9 uh, water vapor valid from uh, 2022 421 UTC to 2022 421 UTC. <coughs> Excuse me. With a uh, new image every five minutes. Images from uh, RAMMB slider dot dot Colorado State dot edu. Okay, if you're interested in going to that link, we'll have that in the show notes. Anyway, hope this helps. If you have any questions or would like a more detailed explanation, <laughs> is it possible? Uh, I'd be happy to do an audio feedback. Take care, Colin. The flying meteorologist and i'm so glad that colin the flying meteorologist listens to our show because we have lots of questions about meteorology and it's nice to have that expert there listening and um, i know steph you have a keen interest in meteorology and i do as well um, in fact i think any pilot out there uh, worth their salt um, are or should be uh, consider themselves a uh, amateur meteorologist because it's very important in the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know much about this particular type of imagery though. So that's very interesting. And I appreciate Colin sending in the uh, feedback to set us straight on that. Me too. Thank you. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, David sent in feedback. Uh, this is just odd. Uh, it's a Facebook video. Captains, hope all is well and the blue side's up. Can someone explain this? It looks very unusual. Kind regards, David Powell. Now, what he's talking <laughs> about is something that I'm going to have to share. Uh, I'm going to have to share a Chrome tab. And so here we go. Just uh, bear with me. Oh. <laughs> That's not play. not play. <laughs> Here we go. All right. So what we're seeing, it looked like a play, um, is the nose area of a, a 737. Um, and it looks like somebody leaving the first officer's uh, side window. Um, but no, it looks like maybe he forgot. So he forgot his wallet or something. No, he's going back in. Now he's going in. <laughs> Front That's, torso. I, I mean, I have that problem frequently, so I understand having to go back to retrieve personal effects that you left on the aircraft. So, 
Here, I'm going to turn the volume down on that, or turn it off, actually. So uh, there's a belt loader that uh, they brought up to the uh, uh, front part of the aircraft and the uh, first officer's window. Now, I believe that on uh, Boeing's of this fuselage design, you know, the 727, 707, 737 series, they designed uh, that particular window. In fact, I, I think you can see the little panel door right where about his right knee is right now. Um, uh, you can open up this access door and actually uh, open that window from the exterior of the aircraft. And so I'm thinking what happened here, uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, is that they came to the airplane and the cockpit door was closed and locked. Now, no fret when we see that because we can enter uh, a super secret code in our um, access panel for the cockpit um, door. And then after a certain amount of time elapses, and this is all confidential, um, there is like a moment where you can actually, there's a way that you can unlock that cockpit door from the outside if you know how to do it. Um, sometimes, though, it, that doesn't work. And it could be that maybe the automatic locking system of that cockpit door was on MEL. It was, it was not work, you know, or MCO. It was uh, out of service for whatever reason. And then maybe the cleaners or somebody just accidentally knocked the, uh, the door closed and it locked. Uh, or it could be just, uh, I, I remember on the Mad Dog in uh, Gulfport, we came out to an airplane with this situation and, um, and we tried everything to get it to operate and we couldn't get it open from inside the cabin. So we went through the nose wheel uh, area, access door. There's an access door there. You can get into the cockpit from underneath. But I knew that that was probably going to be a futile effort because at the time we were still using uh, paper uh, manuals and pubs and stuff like that. And our alternate and emergency publications were stored on the airplane in the cockpit right over the top of that access door. And I don't think that was, it was designed for a pilot to go from underneath and into the cockpit. I think it was designed so that if you needed for whatever reason to access the uh, uh, electrical uh, access or the, uh, um, what do they call the electrical? Now I can't think of the name of the pan, not the panel, but the, uh, um, electrical access area underneath the floor of the cockpit where a lot of the black boxes and stuff are, uh, live, um, the, uh, electronic bay. Yeah. Electronic, electronic bay. bay. That's a good, that's a good name for it. Liz. Um, if you need to access it for whatever reason, from the cockpit, you know, you can open it up and go down. So, uh, yeah, I was able to push the access door maybe an inch, inch and a half up, but then it, it met with resistance and I couldn't get into the cockpit that way. So we eventually figured out how to get the door open, but we took a little bit of a delay. But So what do you think? Now, am I wrong about this, or do you think they were just having fun and wanted to enter the airplane from a different in a different way? I think you are 100% correct. Okay. I agree. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm not going to repeat that, Liz. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I can only imagine, but um, now I'm imagining what Liz said and I'm laughing. Yeah. Also. Uh, you probably know. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, thank you so much, um, David, for sending that in. That is an unusual situation there. I'm sure the passengers in the <laughs> in the concourse are looking out the window, going, "What the what? What's going on out there? What the what?" Um, hey, you'll remember wasn't long ago that we played the video of uh, Jan the man, uh, Jan Sears, on his uh, retirement flight in the, um, what was it, the Gips? Uh, California Highway Patrol? Uh, yeah, or, California or, Highway Patrol. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 the, the air van. Uh, yeah, the air van, the Gips air van or Gips air van. Um, so uh, we received some feedback from Jan the man, and... He said, hi, Jeff, Liz, and crew. Hope you're all well. I'm sending the first in a series of audio messages. We're going to hold you to that, Jan, to talk about my latest career endeavor. I hope you enjoy it, and it provides some inspiration for others who are on the fence of whether or not to make a leap of faith into the crazy world of airline operations. Blue skies, no fires, and days free from Coffin Corner. All the best. He Jan. didn't know we'd played his stuff when he sent this in. Oh, yeah. When he sent this in, Liz is mentioning that he did not know that we had played that uh, retirement video that uh, Tim Van Ram had uh, pointed us to. It was a Facebook post. So, Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So keep that in mind. And we're going to play this audio feedback from Jan the Man. Howdy, APG community. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Steph, Captain Rick. And Nick, the Macho Camacho, hope all of you guys are doing well. Jan the Man here with a uh, report from the field. So I haven't had left any audio feedback in, well, a couple, three years now. Time flies by, COVID, etc. But uh, a lot's taken place since then. So I just wanted to kind of give you guys a feel on uh, what's happened to my career path um, since I last spoke to y'all. So uh, dating back to 2018... I had gone into a cadet program for one of the uh, larger regional carriers um, with the anticipation of retiring from the highway patrol um, as a pilot there. I've been there for 20 plus years and uh, wanted to maybe do something different. So I joined this cadet program. Um, and what that got me was an intro to the airline and you know an idea of, of what they're thought process was and that kind of thing and uh, you know how their hiring works and all the rest of that and thinking that I was going to retire uh, in 2020 but we all know what happened in 2020 so um, COVID came around um, and it was a little bit of a blessing at least for my career um, because it did well during COVID (laughs) being a flying police officer will do that Um, but I will say that um, now the industry is in, um, as everyone knows who pays any attention, is in a world of hurt for qualified pilots. And uh, we're seeing things in the industry that we've never seen before. Um, so the iron, the, t- the time is right um, to strike. And uh, even if you're an old guy like me, I'm, I'm 54 years old, um, been flying since I was 10 years old, but flew professionally for the Highway Patrol for 14 years. Um, and I decided that this was my time to make a move to the airlines and boy, am I happy I did it. So I just wanted to kind of give you a feel for the industry and how the hiring process has worked out for me. Um, so 
a lot of these regional carriers, since that's the feeder for the majors, have these cadet programs. And the advantage to those are um, increased seniority, particularly for non-rev travel, because my seniority number from 2018 is my non-rev travel number. So that helps out gratefully, even though I've never been an employee of the company uh, until now. Uh, and I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, join the cadet program. And most of them are set up for for individuals who are building time um, and have their CFI, uh, whatever their time building technique was to get up to the 1500 hours. And uh, yeah, I, I was managed to stay involved in that cadet program for four years. And it really um, helped me out given that my hiring date dates back to 2018 and I haven't really even touched an aircraft yet. So pretty cool. Um, the interview process. Um, so I interviewed, um, by way of Zoom, because they still were not doing in-person interviews. It was about two and a half hours long and lots of questions and plenty of gouges out there for that kind of thing to kind of get a feel for what an interview like that will entail. And they really want to get to know you and make sure you're not only qualified, but are a good fit for um, for that particular airline. Um, that being said, have your resume really squared away and um, – and in a in a format and in a manner that is professional and one that kind of meets the guidelines of the airline industry and all will be well. And before I continue, you know, I'm like I said, I'm 54. It was a bit of a leap of faith to leave a job that I could have stayed at that has, you know, I still, you know, fortunately have a pension out of it, but I could have had a larger pension had I stayed until the end of my career. But this is something I've dreamed about my entire life. And the opportunity uh, is not going to get any better to go from a regional to a major carrier in the next um, several years. So uh, I, I made that leap of faith, you know, with the support of my wife and my kids who are, who are all in college right now. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a stretch. So uh, a, a definite risk um, with a great reward at the end. So I know each individual is going to have a different, uh, a different path, but um, now that I've been here and in training, I can tell you that I feel real good about the choice that I've made, at least personally for myself. So, um, moving forward, so after the uh, interview process, they say you're hired, um, they schedule you for training, and the first thing they do if you do not have an ATP, which I did not, is they schedule for an ATP CTP course, which is um, basically teaches you high altitude um, operations and how a jet engine works, things that us piston pilots may not know a ton about. Um, and the FAA mandated this course kind of came along with all the 1500 hour requirements back in, back in 2014. And uh, so it's now a requirement before you take the ATP written to take this course, but you know, paying for it on your own is very expensive. And nowadays the regional carriers, most of them are, paying for this course, not to mention they're paying you while you're there taking the course and they're paying for your lodging, um, et cetera. So it's kind of a nice, uh, really, really good deal. And I didn't have to sign a contract or anything that, that binds me to this place. So they're really trusting that you're going to stick around. Um, so we did that down in Dallas. Um, and after the ATP CTP course, we took the ATP written, um, and there's a number of ways to study for that, but uh, they helped us 
be successful in that manner. So I passed that written test. And uh, the next thing you do is you go on to what's called Indoc or Indoctrination. Uh, most airlines have this in place, and it's basically kind of giving their benefits packages and uh, their uh, philosophy on training and a lot of human factors, um, courses and classes and uniform fittings and all that stuff to kind of get you prepared for um, the next step, which is um, your systems validation, which takes a couple weeks. They call it ground school for the particular aircraft. Um, the aircraft I'm training for is the, the Ember 175. DRJ. Um, and so far, uh, I'm one week into um, ground school. So during ground, I was able to pick my base, um, which I haven't found out about, but I'm hoping I get to be on the West Coast. That would be ideal. So I don't have to commute. And that's a whole nother conversation, which I'm sure has come up uh, over the years. But um, yeah, so we get base selection. And what's really awesome is the people that I've met during my training, um, the people that have come here to do the same thing I'm doing, aging, uh, ranging in ages from 23 to 58, um, with some having, you know, the minimum, you know, 1,485 hours, and they have to log every minute of sim time that they get during maneuvers to uh, a 16,000-hour 747 pilot who uh, has been out of the game for a minute. All, all here to do the same thing. Um, so it's interesting to have you know people that are old enough to be my children as my classmates. So super cool, and everybody is just supportive, and we all work together to help each other kind of uh, get through this process. Which kind of the phrase of the week is trust the process um, when you feel overwhelmed or feel like it's uh, bringing you down. Um, trust that process. So. Um, if I'm as lucky to pass the system validations tests at the end of this week, um, I will, um, go home for two, three weeks and then, uh, come back and do maneuvers, uh, validation and, uh, PT, which is procedures validation. So those two, uh, procedures comes first and maneuvers validation and then following by, followed by a check ride, which is, uh, performed by, a uh, an FAA person so that you can get your type rating on the aircraft that you're, that you're going for. In this case, the ERJ for me. Um, and then it's, um, IOE, which stands for initial operating experience. And that's where you go fly with a line captain, uh, with actual passengers in the plane, uh, and, um, learn the ins and outs of daily operations and make sure that you're, you're up to the standards of the aircraft, the, uh, the airline wants you to be. So, I will, uh, I'll give you another report um, once I get through procedures, validation, but I wanted to sort of start this conversation around um, you know, the need and the shortage of pilots and the fact that it is a real thing. Um, you know, the regional airlines are going to have to make some changes in order to um, facilitate that, but I think a lot of that is happening, uh, but not fast enough. So if you've got the, the time, the money, the motivation – um, and you're in a position in your life to to make the jump. Um, I can't stress enough how, at least in my situation, it's been um, – I'm in the right place. I feel like I've made the right move. So uh, at 54, I didn't think I'd ever have uh, a second career, but 
but here I go. So uh, this is Jan the Man signing off for now. Sorry about the long, long, drawn-out uh, voice memo here, but uh, I hope you all have a great week, and I look forward to any questions. And uh, Captain Jeff, you're welcome to forward uh, things on uh, to me via email, janaman113 at gmail.com. So I hope all is well, and uh, take care. And hi, Liz. I didn't mean to leave you off at the beginning. (laughs) Take care, you guys. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Jan, you are the man. (laughs) Great. It was so nice to to, to get caught up with what's been happening. And this is going to be helpful for other people out there and encouraging, I think, for others who are wondering, hmm, I'm not sure I have enough time left to make it worth it. But uh, I think that Jan made the decision that, yeah. Even though he's 54, um, he still has more than 10 years. Um, and who knows, maybe even more <laughs> uh, by the time the FAA starts extending uh, again the uh, maximum retirement age, or if and when that happens. So great to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're looking forward to your upcoming installments. I'm curious to hear how training goes and how you. I know you're going to continue to enjoy it. Um, so that's going to be really interesting to follow along with. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, we're going to knock out a couple of two, three more and uh, call it a show. And uh, I'd like to do number seven from Robert in Tucker, Georgia, uh, previously of uh, south of the uh, big chicken in uh, Mayretta. He said, this was an interesting story to me. Apologies if you've already covered it. And I don't believe we have, actually. Um, And he sent us a link. The first 747 to um, Frankfurt, uh, FRA, was a complete surprise, a visual history of the world's great airports. And uh, on Wednesday, we're not going to read the whole thing here, but let me just read a little bit of it. Um, Wednesday, January 28, 1970, The wide-body era at Frankfurt started rather unexpectedly with the arrival of a diverted Pan Am uh, 747. Uh, Pan American World Airways Boeing 747-121 November 737 Papa Alpha Clipper Red Jacket had been underway from New York's Kennedy Airport to London Heathrow. Scheduled Boeing 747 service on the JFK Heathrow route had only commenced a few days prior, on Thursday, January 22nd. It was the first route on which Pan Am had deployed the 747, and it was the world's first scheduled 747 service. That day, the 362-seat aircraft carried 177 passengers and a crew of 21, among which five cockpit crew. On the controls of Flight 2 was veteran pilot Captain Jess Tranter, part of Pan Am's elite team of 747 qualified pilots, who also piloted the 747 on the test flight to Heathrow on January 11. That morning, London was completely fogged in. Visibility was down to only 50 meters. Thus, Captain Tranter decided to divert to Frankfurt's Rhein-Main Airport, where Pan Am had a major base, and which was the airline's main alternate for London. News about the upcoming arrival of the jumbo jet spread around Frankfurt Airport like wildfire, and anyone who could, in, who could interrupted their work to witness the arrival of what the airport press release referred to as the Flying Cinema. 
presumably because the 747 featured movie screens, a novelty at the time. Uh, the plane touched down at Frankfurt Airport at 8.36 a.m. that morning. After landing, the 747 was guided by two follow-me vehicles to gate B-46 at Frankfurt's brand-new Terminal Mitte, which was still largely under construction. Uh, Terminal Mitte was designed for the 747, and B-46 was one of several gates at Frankfurt that could connect three passenger boarding bridges to the 747, two on the port side and one on the starboard side. According to the press release, two boarding bridges were sufficient to allow the 177 passengers and 21 crew to disembark. Lord Mayor of Frankfurt Professor Dr. Willie Brundert was rushed to the airport for an improvised welcome and gave Captain Tranter and his crew an illustrated book about Frankfurt Airport. Many hundreds of airport and airline employees, as well as construction workers working on Terminal Minta, came by on foot or by airport vehicle to admire the gigantic jet. Uh, the airport press release specifically mentioned that ramp supervisors were not amused by all the vehicles cluttering the ramp. The aircraft was parked at the terminal for about five hours, providing ground crews a golden opportunity to practice their new procedures for the 747. So it turns out that um, I think that the 747 was going to um, be going to Frankfurt uh, for regularly scheduled service, but not until a little bit later. I forgot exactly how long after uh, this chance encounter with the uh, or unexpected encounter with the 747 but i believe it wasn't um let's see um april 5th 1970 april 5th and this okay. happened uh in january oh so it was several months be uh before they yeah. were supposed to see this airplane yeah uh that's look pretty at all cool those though. volkswagens on the on the ramp look at all those volkswagens on yeah. the ramp list so. <laughs> Okay. A lot of definitely a lot of uh, clutter <laughs> happening there on the ramp. A lot of vehicles yeah. and people standing around. Look at all the people on the um, on the observation deck yeah. out there too. Mm -hmm. Up high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you know this was the first jumbo jet. I mean, there was nothing else like it at the time, so it was quite a spectacle. I think. Oh. Yeah, they definitely need a thorough walk around after they're getting ready to. Yeah, wonder if they threw any coins in the engines. Yeah. Lots of they, there were a lot, lot of walk arounds accomplished on that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just nobody qualified really to do it. All right. Anything else? Shall we move on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's move on. I so that's a cool story, though. I love I love all the old pictures. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. Uh, in the show notes, folks, if you want to see those or watch the video, either way, you'll see those mm -hmm. great pictures. All right, um, this is from JJ in Asheville, not Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, you'll recall that I met up with JJ, I don't know, it was probably a couple of years ago in Asheville uh, when I had a layover there. And he had talked about the fact that he was about to start training with a major U.S., I think a major U.S. airline, uh, a U.S. airline uh, as a flight attendant, I believe. And then... That was shortly before the pandemic struck and um, other things happened here. So he said, uh, hey, Jeff and crew, I'm back and living in the mythical triad. Ooh, wow, that's special. I just wanted to say hi. Not, not Asheville. <laughs> not Asheville. No, that's not. It's nope. not too far from the mythical triad. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say hi. 
and update everyone on where I disappeared to for your own knowledge. I don't think he wants us to read. No, no, no. Okay. I don't think he wants us to read that gotcha. sentence. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Steph. You're, You're on it. Pay attention. <laughs> okay, this part I'm not going to read. Wishing you all, but this I will. <laughs> Wishing you all the best, JJ. She knew I was going to read it. <laughs> Thank I you. I did. Yes. For stopping. It's like me. Anchorman. Yeah, he'll he'll read anything. (laughs) It's pretty true, actually. All right. um, So uh, without further ado, we're going to play the audio update from JJ Asheville. Hey, APG crew. This is JJ from AVL or FA Trainee Jordan. I'm sorry I never finished my series on training at Brickyard. I had some personal stuff come up uh, halfway through week two. And I actually had to leave. I wasn't able to complete my training. That said, uh, on my flight home, we flew into a cloud. And here I am about nine months later uh, living in this really fantastic place called the Mythical Triad. I'm working for large checkmark uh, aviation, we'll call it. Um, And I get to serve several different customers, uh, one of which is named after a state. I'll give you a hint. It's the biggest one. Um, And so far, I'm really enjoying it. I'm working in the parts department, uh, giving the mechanics the parts and checking them in and out, which has also given me a really unique perspective on what goes into uh, heavy checks for aircraft. I'm in the process of studying for my ADX written exam or my airline dispatcher exam. Dispatcher Mike over at the Flying in Life podcast Uh, has been a fantastic inspiration and the podcasts that he, Dispatcher Greg, and uh, Dispatcher Joe have put out over the years and recently have been a wonderful kind of aid to my studying as well as giving me a more realistic perspective of what uh, what is to come. I'm sure I'll have more updates for you all in the future. I'll try to be a little more current with it instead of waiting nine months. Um, but I wish everyone blue skies, tailwinds, and all the best from JJ. In the mythical triad. He says he's down for meetups in RDU, GSO, or CLT. Hmm. That gives you a little hint of this mythical place that he lives now. (laughs) Thank you, JJ. You want to end up with uh, number 18, Jeff, of the cartoon? What's that, Liz? I, want to end up I said, very cool. Car- want to end up with a cartoon of number 18? Well, let's do this quickly with um, uh, Deanna, if that's all right. And then we'll end okay. with the cartoon. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay. Um, number nine, uh, from Deanna. Uh, I had plans to watch the new Top Gun movie Saturday afternoon. Alas, I woke up with a headache, congestion, and cough. At the exact time, I should have been standing in line for popcorn and Diet Coke, purchased at the last possible second so I could make it through without a physiological break. I was instead staring down in bitter frustration at a positive COVID test. Uh. So, I've lived vicariously through social media, reading about other people watching it. The algorithm suggested this article. I found it mildly interesting, but really got a kick out of the phrase, studious air nerds might even make a good show title. And, uh, this, uh, clip is from fortune.com and, uh, it's, uh, let's see. Tom Cruise didn't fly top gun Maverick fighter 
jets. Oh, I'm sorry. Tom Cruise didn't fly Top Gun Maverick fighter jets because U.S. Navy wouldn't let him. Uh, Top Gun Maverick studio paid U.S. Navy more than $11,000 an hour for fighter jet rides, but Tom Cruise wasn't allowed to touch the controls. I bet he did, though. Um, anyway. You think just, well, they were afraid of him touching that the button that no, yeah, that no, no pilot, pilot would ever touch. <laughs> would ever touch. Um, so we'll uh, have a link to the article to which she uh, pointed uh, in the show notes. I'm not going to read the entire thing. But uh, anyway, a very interesting article about Top Gun Maverick. By the way, I have seen the film. I went uh, on Monday for a matinee. Mm. Uh, and I paid Recommend? Yes, it's really good. Yeah. Now, of course, it's not 100% accurate, and nobody would ever expect it's a Hollywood a movie. movie to be. You waited until Nick went to bed, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Nick, uh, I can't wait for Captain Nick to uh, to watch this this film. I think he'll have I'm a little worried for quite him a bit to watch to say it, about actually. It. <laughs> Um, Come on, you got to be able to suspend reality for a little bit. Yeah. Enjoy the story, enjoy both. the cinematography of it, and, you know, relax for a couple hours. Right. That's what it's meant to do. Have you had a chance to see it yet, Steph? I have. Okay. I couldn't remember. And I, I don't know. I left the theater feeling pretty pumped to go out and go flying again. I'm, you know, it was, again, you know, set aside how accurate all the flying stuff was. Um, you know, there are a couple times I think I rolled my eyes. You know, I was by myself. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I did or not. I probably did, but it was a good story. Um, I yeah. mean, it just a, it was a good, feel good kind of film, and I think it wasn't quite as sappy and and kind of. I don't know. How would you describe it, uh, Steph? I, I think what I I liked the most about how they did it is that it they somehow managed to capture all of the elements that people wanted to. Um, you know, be nostalgic about from the first film, mm -hmm. but also update it in a way that felt a lot more modern, including the storyline. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, they didn't, it, you know, it was still quality. I think a lot of sequels suffer from being right. a sequel for the sake of being a sequel, and this was not that. Yeah, I was. I was actually quite impressed with it. I was. I walked out of the theater with a big smile on my face and thought, "Well done, uh, Nick." Have you seen it yet? Nope, I haven't yet. Um, okay. My, I haven't. Uh, don't get to do a lot of go to a lot of movies with my wife. And mm -hmm. This is one that we're both going to be interested in, so we're well, trying to make everything line up, and we haven't yet. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Well, I can't wait till you do. Go tonight, it'll be fine. Just leave the kids review. at home. <laughs> they don't need supervision for a few yeah. hours. So it'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert: It has something to do with. Navy fighter jets. Yeah. What? Wow, yeah. Jeff. Uh, did I give it away? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think so. You've ruined it. Oh, well. He doesn't need to see it now. So. Um, and 18. As Liz suggested, we're going to end the show on a, on an up note, a funny note. Uh, this from Tim Van Ram. And he sent us in a cartoon. And uh, go ahead and throw that up there. Again, from our favorite cartoonist. Uh, Mr. Larson, Gary Larson. Um, so it, you'll have to see the show notes, uh, but uh, we'll, I'll try to describe it. Um, in the 
in the background. Anderson's Anderson's. Yes, there's a a window uh, with a sign that says Anderson's School for Seeing Seeing Eye Dogs, and in the foreground we see kind of a a test platform or test bed for these seeing eye dogs. They must be going through some kind of a testing procedure, and uh, there is a, a blind person. Um, holding the leash of uh, seeing eye dog number 24. Um, They are uh, on a ramp heading up the inlet, I believe, of, or could be the exhaust, I can't tell, of a a jet engine. Um, And uh, the caption says, well, scratch number 24. He did pretty good, though, right up to the jet engine test. So... (laughs) So this is funny on several levels because I could see Captain Nick running a school like this in his <laughs> retirement with his love of dogs. Yeah. It is Anderson's school for seeing eye dogs. And I could see Captain Nick blind wearing those blind glasses. Blind drunk? Blind drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was Liz that said that, not me. I was just repeating her. Um, anyway, uh, very good. Thank you, Tim, for... Uh, Sending that. Oh, and Deanna in our live audience says, uh, following up on her feedback regarding missing out on the uh, Top Gun Maverick movie, uh, she said, I saw it the following weekend and loved it. And hopefully you made it through the COVID uh, without uh, too much uh, hassle. I hope you're feeling better. And uh, thanks so much for sending in that feedback. And we'll, we'll have to uh, hear your take and review on the film other than well, it, that basically sums it up, Deanna. She loved it. So, all right. That will do it for today's show. And uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed it. Um, we always point you to the website, airlinepilotguy.com, where there are all kinds of things for you to check out, including the ABG library. Uh, we have merchandise. We have information about the coffee fund. We have the APG community calendar and information about how you can get involved in the uh, community and uh, information about most of the members of our crew <laughs> and and all outdated, I should add as well, and uh, so much more. So check it out by uh, heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. Also, we're on the Meads, and uh, Steph's going to tell us all about that. Check out the social meds. We're on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. You could also head over to Twitter. We're at APG crew and our individual Twitter information is pinned to the top of that page. We're also on Instagram where we're also APG crew. Um, and if you want a deep dive into all the things APG, I would recommend Slack. Yes, Slack. And let me see if, um, hello, hello, Jeff, are you, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poo for once? I'm terribly sorry that you had to hear that. Um, luckily, I have a recording of Hillel, and he's going to tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, 
Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Okay, again, that was a recording of Hillel, but let me see. Hillel, sorry about that. I keep flushing, but it's still in there, Jeff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm... <laughs> That was not the one I was supposed to push. I ever thought might, I was going to be might. pushing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it went well with, with his first comments. So, it did. Um, it did. You might want to call <laughs> hotel maintenance. Maybe they have a plumber yeah. on staff to. It's yeah. going to get a little uncomfortable in there after a while, yeah. I think. Maybe uh, yeah. open a window. Is it real hot outside still? It is hot yeah. here. And I've had the air conditioning off for a while, so that might help. Um, <laughs> anyway. As always, Hillel, we do appreciate your assistance. Uh, sorry it was a bad time this week. Um, yeah. And uh, also, we'd like to uh, say a big thank you to Liz, who does so much work behind the scenes, our producer, director, my assistant in thank Toronto, you, Canada. Welcome, guys. All right. Great there time she to is. Back this week. Awesome. All right. And with that, we're going to uh, hope that you have a great week, great weekend. We hope to see you again next week on the APG. And until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you later. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how it got